Maverick News presents The Rick Walker Show Defrag your mind Good evening everyone, I'm Rick Walker Welcome back to the Maverick News Channel Let me get that logo down There we go Sorry about that Tonight, we're going to talk about China. We're going to talk about Steve Bannon, Miles Guo, cryptocurrency, the Miles Guo cryptocurrency scheme that landed him in jail on allegations of I guess not properly <laughs> handling about a billion dollars in money submitted to him for this cryptocurrency. Anyway, we'll get into that. We'll show you this uh, kangaroo that escaped from a zoo around Oshawa and is still on the loose. And we've had multiple sightings along highways and byways. Speaker Mike Johnson says he thinks he has the votes to authorize a Biden impeachment inquiry. We have a new video from Pierre Polyev talking about housing hell. We have Walmart jumping on the virtue signaling, politically correct bandwagon and deciding to boycott X, or shall I say Twitter? And what else do we have? We have... Part two, Henry Kissinger, a complex man, uh, sort of idolized by some as an architect of peace and viewed as a war criminal by others. We won't uh, dig too much deeper into Henry Kissinger tonight, but there were a few points that I did not get to make last night. So this is sort of a part two to just sum things up. We'll tie it all up here this evening on the Maverick News Channel. Henry Kissinger, statesman, passed away this week at the age of 100. One of the uh, most impactful figures of our time, of the 20th century and laid much of the groundwork for what is to come in the 21st century. Stay with me. I'll be right back with more after this. Greetings, brave mavericks. Our quest for truth continues. We go beyond fake news. 
Together we expose propaganda. Together we pull others. Out. Of rabbit holes. We are maverick thinkers. We are all unique individuals. Individuals. Defenders of individual rights and freedoms. Credible. Trusted. Grounded in reality. Maverick News. Maverick, maverick News. Defending free speech. Free speech. Donate. At freedomreporters.com. Do it now. Tomorrow. Maybe too late. Too late. Too late. Too late. Maverick News. The world is watching. Jingle bells. Trudeau smells. Biden laid an egg. Klaus Schwab's deal has no appeal. But tomorrow is a brand new day. Hey everyone. Have a merry maverick Christmas. And a magnificent new year. And before we get rolling with everything else, we should start with the most timely stuff, I suppose. And that is right here in my home province of Ontario, Canada, where the Liberal Party of Ontario has a new leader as of just, well, it looks like just moments ago. Let's go to the leadership convention. And you'll find out who it is. Here we go. Thank you, volunteers. Yeah, there. This is the way it's going down. It has been a long but very exciting day, and it's come down to this. Quiet, please. Quiet, please. Thank you. For our final round of votes, we have the following result. For Bonnie Crombie, on a 6,911 6,911 votes. Just a minute. Party, 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 party. It will Nate Erskine-Smith on our 6,000,000, 29th point. Nate Erskine-Smith, 6,029. Bonnie Crabby is our new leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. Congratulations, Bonnie Crabby. So Bonnie Crombie, mayor of Mississauga, and is now the new leader of the Ontario Liberal Party in Canada. She was uh, the perceived front runner all through the entire race and will now 
lead the liberals into the next election, their objective to defeat Premier Doug Ford and regain official party status. The party was so devastated after the 2022 election that they saw the party win just eight seats. That's what forced then-leader Stephen Del Duca to step down. He had only been the leader of the party for two years. So let's just uh, hang tough here for a second, and I'll get uh, I'll get back here with you with uh, Bonnie Crombie's victory speech in just one moment. Don't go away. I'll be right back. to the Ontario Liberal Party Convention and we'll pick up Bonnie Crombie's victory speech, the new leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. This is such an honor. Thank you. Thank you for your faith in me. Merci pour votre confiance dans ma vision pour notre parti. Thank you for believing in what we are going to build together. Thank you for taking a spark and turning it into a big red flame here today. <laughs> there is no question, being an Ontario liberal is back. <laughs> And that is thanks to each and every one of you. <laughs> this campaign has really been an amazing experience. Contested campaigns, hotly contested campaigns like this one. This was a marathon, oh my goodness. And I know that many, many people in this room have worked incredibly hard for the last six months, for the last year, some for more than a year to get to here today. So thank you for every bit of effort that you have put into rebuilding our party. It is by challenging each other to be bolder, smarter, and to work harder that we will keep building the Ontario Liberal Party back. But we need your energy. We need your ideas, and we need you! Nous avons besoin de tous les libérales de l'Ontario. We need 
every Liberal across Ontario working together. So I want to take a moment to thank the people who have brought this party together in such an exciting way. Nate, Yasser, Ted, and Adel. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. You have challenged us to be bolder, to be smarter, and to work harder. You have challenged me to be bolder, to be smarter, and to work harder. Congratulations to each of you. This is a moment for all of us. Let's come together and challenge the status quo. Let's give our party the fresh start we need with serious leadership for all of us. It's been a week since we voted, and now we're all gathered here today. A moment to catch our breath, right? <laughs> For me, it's been a time of some reflection, to think about where we've been, where we are as a party, and where we need to go. And there's one word that comes to mind, resilience. As a party, we've been through two very tough elections. We could have spent the last couple years talking about how hard it's been, or how unfair it's been. But no, John Fraser and our Liberal Caucus leaned in to push forward. That's right. Thank you, John. And thank you to the caucus. Together, we have held Doug Ford and the Conservatives accountable for countless abuses of power. Our caucus has grown with two new local champions, Andrea and Karen. And we embarked on a hotly contested leadership campaign with the best and the brightest candidates. And that's right, let's hear it for them, come on. And we grew our party to be the biggest in this province with more than 100,000 members. That is resilience. And look, we're going to need that resilience because we all know that we're in for an even bigger fight ahead. We have built this big, strong, liberal team. And now, I hate to break it to you, but we have to dig a little deeper. You know why. Because Doug Ford and his conservatives, they will be coming after us at any minute now. So we have to be ready. We have to be ready to work even harder, but together. Ford and his conservative cronies have been the opponents in all of our sites for this entire campaign. 2026 has been in all of our sites this entire campaign, but this is our moment. <laughs> Doug Ford and his conservative gover government 
haven't just lost touch with the people of this province, they've deliberately ignored people's needs. Doug Ford cares more about lining the pockets of a few well-connected, wealthy friends than he does about building homes for real people. And Doug Ford doesn't have a plan to fight climate change, and he never will. Doug Ford calls our healthcare workers heroes, yet in the same breath refuses to pay them a living wage. Doug Ford could cap class sizes and better support our educators, but he'd rather pick fights with teachers instead. People across Ontario are ready for a government that prioritizes the things that you care about. Yeah, a universal health care system that supports you when you need it. Groceries, housing, utility bills you can afford, and education that sets you up and your kids up for success, and communities that care about each other and our climate. People are looking for a government that they can trust. It's not too much to ask for. Doug Ford doesn't care about the real people in Ontario. This has been made abundantly clear, and that is simply not good enough for Ontario families. Not anymore. It's time to earn back that trust. It's time to show that a government that you can trust is an Ontario Liberal government. And we're going to lead the way, yes. Our job for the next two and a half years is to earn Ontario's trust. Earning trust is a step-by-step -step process and I need all of you to be part of that effort. Sharing policy ideas, knocking on doors, hosting meet and greets in your communities, and bringing your neighbors into the Liberal team. The work ahead is going to be even harder than the work behind us. But we're ready, aren't we? We're ready to show exactly how resilient we are as a party. Together, we're going to create a policy platform that speaks to the needs of people across this province. We're going to talk to people in communities from every corner of the province so that we can show what it looks like to have a government that listens and cares. Together, we're going to inspire and recruit candidates who reflect Ontario. And together, we're going to keep this momentum going, raising a war chest that will... <laughs> That's going to help us reach voters who are very, very ready for a change. <laughs> That's right. That is our mission. Are you with me? I'm so glad. I'm very aware that some of you here tonight and those watching at home, some of you know me very well. Some of you know me a little bit. And some of you, not very much at all. So I'd like to take a moment to introduce myself to you. Hi, 
I'm Bonnie Crombie. <laughs> and like many of you, I'm living life right now in that sandwich generation. I have three children. They're here with me tonight, right in the front row. Alex, Jonathan, and Natasha were the center of my universe. And I'm blessed to have my mother, who's 87, Veronica, in my life. Hi, Mom. <laughs> She's not here with us today. It's, it was a little too much for her. But I love you, Mom. Hope you're watching. You did get the link, right? I hope so. <laughs> my mom was born in Poland. Yes, I'm the most Scottish-sounding Polish woman you'll ever meet. <laughs> but they moved to France just before war broke out in Europe. My grandfather fought against the Nazis and he was captured and put in a war camp. But thankfully, near the end of the war, he was liberated by an American soldier. And my grandparents and my mother came to Ontario. My mother and my grandparents gave me an amazing childhood, but it wasn't always easy. My biological father he struggled with addiction and mental illness. He and my mom split up when I was three and we lived in a rooming house with my grandparents in High Park, Stoff Ronsonsville. And I wanna tell you this because it shaped who I am today. My mom taught me resilience. She instilled in me the values of education, hard work, saving your pennies, never taking anything for granted. And I've always worked. I worked through school. I was working as a mother. Boy, that's not easy, is it, ladies? No, no. And ultimately, I found work that was a calling. I got involved politically because of Pierre Elliott Trudeau's vision of a just society and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, where people of all backgrounds can find a welcoming home in Canada. My mentor in politics, you may not find this surprising, was the legendary Hazel McCallion. <laughs> Hazel taught me everything I needed to know. Do your homework, she used to say. <laughs> and by that, she meant listening to people. But she also taught me to pay attention to how we manage other people's money. That was critical. Because these are the foundational. Okay, so Bonnie Crombie, that I new leader of the Liberal Party of Ontario. So she'll carry the party forward into the next provincial election against Doug Ford. And she was speaking about climate change timely because COP28 is happening. And today, John Kerry, representing the United States, went to COP28 and committed to no more coal plants being built in the United States and outlined a path forward with the intention of shutting down coal power plants the existing coal power plants over time in the United States, while at the same time getting behind a larger initiative at COP28 
being endorsed by the participating countries to severely reduce methane emissions. Methane comes from a variety of sources, including petrochemical refinement. And so a lot of money is being thrown at this and it's the biggest COP event ever. And as we've shown you, these uh, world leaders are flying in on their jet fuel jets to participate in this year's COP28 event. How many people are here for this thing? Something like 84,000 people have registered to attend this event, and only 3,000 of them came in via virtual online attendance. So over about 80, 81,000 people have flown, have flown into COP28. And that's 30,000 more than last year's event. Among them, some, some, some climate change activists who have been outside protesting, in particular outside the U.S. pavilion. <laughs> it just, I, you can't make this stuff up. It's just true. Anyway, here's John Kerry. Let's get him queued up here. Speaking at the event today, as I say, the U.S. is not going to be building any more coal-fired power plants, even though China is proceeding with the construction of new plants all the time. They have a, an aggressive coal-fired coal power plant construction schedule. And uh, the United States is shutting theirs down and committing, or no, they're not going to build anymore, and they're going to shut the ones that they have down. So here's John Kerry at COP28. Just think of that. Five years ago, people didn't talk about methane in the context of the climate crisis. And in Glasgow, President Biden stood up and said, we're going to have a methane challenge that by 2030, 30% a reduction across the board, not for one nation, but globally. And if we achieve that 30% reduction, which we think we can, it is the equivalent of every airplane, every car, every truck, every ship in the world going to zero in that period of time. That is monumental, folks. And so we're very appreciative of all those who have embraced this notion. We know, and it's almost cliched now, and I'm going to try to resist it. I don't want to get into the crisis of the moment or the level of the crisis or where we are. But let me just tell you bluntly, when the best scientists in the world unanimously are telling us as leaders in our countries that we are on the brink of tipping points from which you cannot come back, irreversible, that the permafrost or the barren sea ice, or the, or the coral reefs, or most importantly, the Arctic and the Antarctic 
may be at tipping point or beyond. Last summer, it was 70 degrees Fahrenheit above normal in the Arctic. It was 100 degrees Fahrenheit above normal in the Antarctic. And a massive component of ice that had been lodged in the mud because it was so heavy, it was stuck there, has now melted sufficiently that it's risen and moving across the Southern Ocean towards Georgia Island, and it will melt and accelerate the sea level rise of the planet. So this year, we just learned yesterday, it was confirmed, it's not when we learned it, was the hottest year in history, human history that we measured. But that's true now of every year almost. For the last 30 years, decades, three, year, three decades ago was the third now warmest. The second decade was the second warmest, and this last decade, the warmest in history. So I'm not going to say more about it, except to say that if we can't hear Mother Nature and can't judge with our own eyes what the science is telling us, this is not about politics, there's no ideology, there's no pejorative against any one business or any approach. There is simply mathematics and physics and some chemistry and biology. That is what we are acting on. So we fortunately were able to come to agreement with China and the United States that we are as the two largest emitters in the world. Obviously, we understand it's important for us to be able to find cooperation here. No one country, no business anywhere in the world will solve this problem by itself. It will take the essence of multilateralism and, and global cooperation to be able to make this happen. Reducing methane emissions by at least 30% in 2030 is totally in line with the global methane pledge, which could avoid over 0.2 degrees centigrade of warming by 2050. Every expert agrees that dealing with methane, which in its early years of release into the atmosphere is 80 to 100 times more destructive than CO2. Or dealing with it in the later years, when it is still 20 times more destructive than CO2, is critical to our ability to hold on to 1.5 degrees. The fact is that tackling methane, fugitive gas, which now rises from the thawing of permafrost in the tundra, in Alaska, in Russia. It is fugitive gas, and it just is out there doing damage, unless we discover how we're going to stop it or keep it from leaking or flaring or venting. So my friends, this is the fastest, simplest, easiest, quickest, cheapest way to be able to make the gains we need to make to reduce the threat to the planet. Now, action to reduce HFCs is also in line with the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol, and increasing cooling efficiency in this decade could reduce 0.1% of degrees of warming by 2050. Non-CO2 greenhouse gases also cause almost 500,000 deaths every year from respiratory illnesses and 6% of global crop loss, food production loss, at a time when global production is already deeply strained. 
Rapidly reducing non-CO2 emissions is a three-in-one winner. It is advancing global climate crisis challenge, uh, responses. It is providing cleaner air and food security objectives are met simultaneously. So the stakes, obviously, are what I described. The scientists are saying this moment is alarming. It's without precedent. It is terrifying, some have said. And others will say we are in uncharted territory. So that is why it is critical that we include all greenhouse gases in the oh, next round of nationally determined contributions. The other guy was on his cell phone. That guy wants to have finalized by 2025. And I'm really heartened. We're all encouraged that China, President Xi and Xi Jinping's work and his team committed to do this in sunny lands. And I call on the global community to likewise commit to include all greenhouse gases economy-wide in future NDCs. Okay. So there's John Kerry and, uh, you know, less methane means less meat. Yep. Less meat. Guaranteed. That's what we're getting at. Also, I just wanted to mention, I forgot to mention this off the top. Last night I said we were going to have Sean Buckley from the National Citizens Inquiry on tonight. He sends his regrets. He was not able to do the interview with us this evening, but he will reschedule. He will be on in the days ahead. And we will talk about the final report from the NCI at that time and get a bead on what comes next now that we have that fantastic final report from the NCI. Stay with me. More ahead. Don't go away. Hello, world. Are you awake? Uniting humankind by liberating millions of minds at a time. Maverick News. The world is watching. So, well, the new liberal leader for Ontario and John Kerry are talking about climate change, methane reductions, and, you know, methane reductions, it, it definitely ties into meat production. We all know about those farting cows that they're so concerned about. Well, Rising food prices are changing the way that people are shopping and eating. There's a new poll out from Ipsos Read. And this new poll says that Canadians are changing the way they are shopping and changing the way they are eating 
because of the massive inflation that we are seeing in this country. So let me just get you the stats here. What are they saying in this Ipsos Read poll? There, it's, there's a new phrase, actually, because of this that's being <laughs> bandied about called lessertarian. Not a vegetarian. You're a lessertarian. It means you're eating less meat. <laughs> less meat, more chicken, and more veggies. So I'm just looking here. I, I didn't really have time to go over this poll in any great detail before coming on the air on the air tonight. But and in fact, I don't think they're really giving you much of a rundown on stats per se, but it's more just an overall gauge of what people are feeling and what their habits are at the grocery store and at the dining room table. And they are saying that uh, people are cutting back on meat, in particular meat. And, and according to this poll, more people are purchasing less expensive fruits and vegetables, which is what they want you to eat anyway. At least that's what the government wants you to eat. And so some food economists responding to this tonight are saying that uh, Canada and Canadian consumers have reached something that they're referring to as an inflection point where people are now looking at plant-based food as well as a, an alternative to real meat, you know, the Beyond Burger stuff. Some people are actually taking another look at that. And that those are products that they were really pushing for a couple of years you've probably noticed they are not really, they never really caught on. People didn't really like it. And there's some, there is some um, concern that some of those products may not be as healthy as they were leading us to believe. Anyway. Pretty obvious if you've been to the grocery store exactly what we're going through because we are seeing inflation that in real terms over the past couple of years has resulted in about a 30 to 40% increase in, in some cases even a doubling of prices of many staple food products at the grocery store. So according to this poll, 47% of meat eaters say they plan to cut back on their meat consumption this year. And the number one reason for that is the rising cost. And that's a lot more than, that's a much higher figure than they got last year. 
And if you go back to 2018, this all started as far back as then. And even then, 25% of respondents to the same question at that time said that they were going to cut back on meat consumption because of rising prices. But now 45% of people heading into Christmas say they will be eating less meat this coming year. Yeah. So that's everything going on on the climate change front and the impact that it's actually having you in real terms at the grocery store. And, you know, out in uh, Chicago and in some other areas, too, but in Chicago, people who want to go shopping this Christmas have fewer choices. There's a lot less competition. And a lot less selection because back in April, Walmart closed half of its stores in Chicago. In addition to that, and this is really what brings this story front and center for me tonight, Walmart has announced it is not going to be advertising on X, Twitter, and all of that. Related, of course, to Elon Musk's posts, which have proven to be triggering for people, especially on the left side of the political spectrum. It says it's scaling back its advertising on X. Walmart's decision apparently has been in the works for a while, according to a company insider. But this announcement comes as there is actually, you know, a full-scale advertiser exodus ongoing. Walmart spends about $2.7 billion on advertising each year. And they have, uh, they've, they've reached about a half a billion people on X every year using that platform. They've generated 15 billion impressions about the holidays coming alone with more than 50% of ex-users doing most or all of their shopping online. That according to a marketing firm. But Musk, of course, um, <laughs> went to that deal book summit with the New York Times and basically told all the advertisers, all the big corporations that said they were possibly going to boycott X, he said, go F yourself. Saying that nobody was going to blackmail him with money. So dozens of advertisers, including Coca-Cola, Disney, Apple, now Walmart, are pulling off pulling their advertising off X all because of that post by, well, that Musk retweeted, um, which was deemed to be anti-Semitic. And he and his, his post said that the original post was, in his words, the actual truth. So this could 
results in about $75 million in lost revenue to X, not just from Walmart pulling out, but all of the advertisers combined so far. That's about what this is costing Elon Musk. But, you know, it's it's a funny thing with these big stores, and there's going to be a little editorializing in here and what I'm about to say. Um, people on the left side of the political spectrum, they, they're kind of neurotic. Some people say liberalism is a mental disorder. You know, I've seen time and time and time and time and time again, where Wal when Walmart was really expanding, Every time they would want to go into a community, including Chicago, every single time there would be protests, accusations of, you know, an evil big box store, a big corporation coming into town and undercutting local businesses on pricing and engaging in unfair business practices and abusing the community. And they would try to keep Walmart out while the politicians, of course, would be working to try to attract the investment to set the big box stores up, to set the Walmarts up. Walmart in particular, they would generate a lot of backlash, especially from the political left the anti-capitalist, anti-corporate types. So in Chicago, of course, they went through a series of those kinds of events as many, many communities across Canada and the United States did over you know, a couple of decades, really. And as they were built up, People became dependent on them, or at least they liked them. But in some cases now, and in the case of Chicago, they've closed half of their Walmarts. So this Christmas, people in those now underserved communities, many of them, you know, less affluent, and communities where uh, minorities... Um, are, you know, predominantly living. And because they're closing, they turned around and had protests because they closed. They didn't want them there to begin with. And now they, they don't want them to leave, but they've, they have left. And it's interesting, you know, the, the reasons why the company left. So here's, a company statement from Walmart about closing those four stores earlier this year. So, of course, something like this is going to be, you know, carefully worded. It says the decision to close a store is never easy. The impact is greater than just closing a building. It affects people, people who work in, shop in, and live in communities near our stores. And we never take that lightly. Treating people and communities with respect and compassion during this transition will guide everything we do. 
For example, all associates in these stores are eligible to transfer to another Walmart location. Hiring managers from surrounding facilities will be in each of these stores this week to help associates begin finding their next opportunity. And it goes on, having an active role in the community is especially important to us. We are proud of our neighborhood investments through local events like Christmas in the wards, the Always Giving Back Foundation bike giveaway, Chai Gives Back MLK Day, the Bud Billiken Day Parade, and more. We will continue working with local organizations, creating solutions to challenges faced by the city and country, including racial inequity and food desserts, deserts rather. We continue to help create and expand job opportunities and will leverage our resources to help strengthen the community, especially those underserved. And it goes on and on. Um, the simplest explanation, it says here that collectively our Chicago stores have not been profitable since we opened the first one nearly 17 years ago. These stores lose tens of millions of dollars a year and their annual losses nearly doubled in just the last five years. The remaining four Chicago stores continue to face the same business difficulties, but we think this decision gives us the best chance to help keep them open and serving the community. So it lists the four stores that closed. Now, this was back in April, right? When this was announced. And it talks about um, the severance that the employees will be paid and so on. So all of that happened. But this Christmas, of course, this leaves people in some of those communities with less choice, less fewer places to go to shop. Some people are pretty upset about that. But, you know, you look at the way the media covered these closures and they really, you know, if you look at CNN, if you look at any of the mainstream media, they kind of point the finger of blame straight at the company in many respects. Not in every case. This is CNN business. And they highlight the protests. Predominantly by people who, you know, <laughs> well, yeah, it, it's, it's just funny, I think. I mean, it's not funny that this has hap happened and that this still is affecting predominantly black and low-income neighborhoods. But... It, it's odd to see, on the one hand, people protesting when they come in saying, you can't come in here, you big evil corporation. And then when they set up, they're not making money. And then when they have to pull out, they protest and say, you're evil. You shouldn't be leaving. You're leaving us in the lurch. This is corporate racism. And that's kind of the way the media has been portraying this as well, saying, you know, they can't make money, but why can't they make money? It's because of a combination of things, government policies, government regulations, high taxes, high business and property taxes, and theft. Heavy-duty shoplifting, and in some cases, even looting, as we saw during the George Floyd 
protests that turned into episodes of looting in some communities. A lot of video of that online in some cities, especially out of Florida. There was a lot down there. But even just the shoplifting, which is one of the main reasons. And some, you know, some media, in particular, the not mainstream media, has been a little bit more honest about this. Walmart's flight from Chicago, corporate racism or crime, taxes and dysfunction. That's what this headline says. Corporate racism, disinvestment, a broken promise. That's the criticism Walmart is getting from activists and politicians for its abrupt decision to close half of its Chicago stores only a few years after agreeing to expand in the city as part of its corporate racial justice initiative in the wake of George Floyd's death. Four stores are closing, three in the lower income neighborhoods in Chatham, Kenwood, and Little Village. And another in Lakeview, Walmart says the stores simply aren't profitable due to a combination of our sales product margin and expenses and lose the company tens of millions of dollars a year. <laughs> anyway, you scroll down and you look at this and they start looking at the crime numbers. And this is having a direct impact on the company's ability to do business in these neighborhoods. Since you're a jump in Chicago, crime has definitely made business increasingly more difficult, chasing out the likes of Citadel and Ken Griffin and leading to warnings from McDonald's CEO that Chicago has led the nation in homicides for 11 straight years. And in its 75-city homicide survey, and overall, crime is up again another 45% this year after last year's increase of 41%. Needless to say, a dangerous, crime-ridden city is not, or a neighborhood, is not conducive to doing business efficiently. And it makes it difficult to make people feel safe as, as they come out to go shopping, I, I suppose. For Walmart, the more direct hit from lawlessness comes from theft, it says right here. Reported thefts, including retail theft in the four communities, totaled over 15,800 in the last four years. Just 7% resulted in arrests. 7%. That means 93% of everybody that went in there and stole stuff, 93% of shoplifters just walked away. And it says here, keep in mind that these are only the reported crimes. The actual amount of theft is likely much, much higher than that. And that is truly the bottom line. And the politicians really have not done anything to make this better. But even in the wake of this, as this has been happening, you are seeing left-wing politicians and left-wing activists out there saying that the approach with Walmart was wrong from the beginning, that they should have been trying to attract local businesses that are more committed to the community. Well, I understand that too. 
And the mayor of Chicago has been calling on Walmart to make use of those now vacant retail outlets in new ways to repurpose them, to find more still productive ways to serve the communities with those, those buildings. But Walmart's in the retail business. They're a private company. They go in there. And what did they do? They offered up jobs. They offered services. They offered goods. To those communities, including a pharmacy. And they, they, they met with resistance coming in, and now they're getting resistance going out. And I can tell you as a as someone, again, and this is editorializing, as someone who owned a couple of stores, small, just a small hobby at retail and video stores um, years ago, not in the city I'm in right now, but in other two other cities. Um, theft was just, I was in the downtown area and it was terrible. That is, that was something that just was devastating. Theft and break-ins. Robberies, overnight robberies, where they would just come in and just steal everything. I was just a little guy, man. If 93% of shoplifters are getting away with it in Walmarts and CVSs and stores all over America, and that seems to be the policy now too. It's if you see somebody stealing something, don't confront them, just let them go. Uh, it's not good. And people should not be surprised when these stores close down. It's like, uh, you know, out in California in particular, theft is now almost viewed, well, it is, I think, viewed by many on the, the left as a right. If you're, especially if you're, if you're feeling like you're in need, um, they say it's okay to go in and steal. And uh, this is the result, folks. So food for thought, I don't know. Hopefully solutions can be found over time. We will be right back right after this. We are Mavericks. We say no to the Trudeau and Biden New World Order. And to Bugs. Because bugs are creepy and gross. And people should not eat bugs. Maverick News. The world is watching. So in Oshawa, there was a kangaroo that uh, escaped from a park, an Oshawa Zoo, and it's it's 
nobody can catch this thing. And so there have been multiple sightings along highways and streets, and people are worried about it. It was uh, first spotted yesterday, and we've got some video here to show you of it. In fact, police are, and other public officials are advising people to stay away from it. Don't try to interact with it because they're very strong and uh, you could get hurt, I guess. So the police and animal control, they're out there, I guess, trying to find this marsupial. And I guess they're, uh, they can survive kangaroos and temperatures down to about minus 10 Celsius. But if it gets colder than that, and it gets pretty cold now at night, um, it could struggle. It could, have, it could have a rough time. It could even die. So they are trying to catch this kangaroo. And let me show you the video. Kangaroo spotters. Hello, Mr. Kangaroo. Here we are. Check this out. What the heck is that? Pretty cool. I hope they get him. I hope they get him back. Wouldn't want him to spend another night out there in the cold. Speaker Mike Johnson says he thinks he has enough votes to authorize a Biden impeachment inquiry. So Johnson alleged that the White House has been stonewalling Three GOP-led House committees driving the impeachment acquired judiciary, oversight, and ways and means. But he's pushing this forward, and as I understand it, he's doing this um, largely at the urging of Marjorie Taylor Greene. And uh, Biden and his team are describing this effort to impeach him as illegitimate. Republicans left a, a closed door meeting, a closed door conference yesterday, indicated the House could vote to formally authorize an impeachment inquiry into the president as early as this coming week. So that's what they're looking to do. So we'll keep our eyes uh, open for that. The Oversight Committee said that it has obtained financial documents that it alleges show that members of the Biden family had established over 20 shell companies, most of which were set up during Joe Biden's time as vice president. Those companies, the panel alleges, were part of an effort to cover up payments from foreign adversaries. Yep. Like China. 
China, China, China. The only good thing I see coming out of that is that if he's taking money from China, at least we won't go to war with them. Maybe. Hard to say. Hard to say. Speaking of China, have you heard of the new federal state of China, the NFSC? They've been around for three years. It's a political activist group, which is focused on bringing down the Chinese Communist Party. It was started by Steve Bannon and Miles Guo. And they've been getting a lot of attraction in the last, oh, especially the last few months online. They're getting a lot more support getting more profile online, especially through Twitter and these new emerging social media platforms like Getter, Truth Social. Not so much on Facebook or YouTube. But on those other platforms, they're getting traction. Very interesting. What I'm seeing happen with that, it's, you know, especially in light of all of this stuff going on with Biden, the allegations of maybe corruption, and then Bannon, you know, if you watch his war room, they always start off with that song, right? Let's take down the CCP. That's because of the NFSC. And for three years, the NFSC has been growing. But Miles Guo, who goes by a variety of names. He's in jail. He's been arrested in the United States. He, he's been living in the United States. And this organization is operating from the United States, but focused on taking down the CCP. But as I say, they're like political activists. And I think you're getting real pushback against Chinese Influence in the United States from the NFSC. And you're seeing it online where they're getting a louder and louder voice and being interviewed now more often on some of the conservative news platforms with their commentaries and the kind of journalism, I guess, that if you want to characterize it as that, uh, activist journalism that uh, is designed to combat pro-China rhetoric. Here is an example with um, Ava Chen of the NFSC. And she is, I think this is on, is it the one America? This is America's Voice that she appears on. And she is saying that the CCP, their beliefs and values are the exact opposite of what U.S. values are. Let's uh, let's run this clip, and I'll show you. 
and not only mentioning about manipulation of market, because the CCP and this totalitarian regime does not believe free market, free capital. It is all about a control, which is completely opposite to what the United States is about. You want a free capital, free market, free open competition. So this is basically opposite of what you believed and your value system. So if one is about control, the other one is about protecting freedom and ensure there's no one going to trample on your freedom and seize the control. So I think, and the other party, the CCP is all about enrich a very small group of people on the top, which we call them CCP kleptocrats or the global elites. But the other system, which United States system is about prosperity for all, for all the people. So you can see this is completely opposite. And a CCP is using cheat and lie and deceptions and even a resort to blackmailing coercive behavior to bring down people who are in dissent. But the United States are protecting because at least you have rule of law, you have a chance to fight in the court, although that becomes extremely difficult. So you can tell from every aspect of your life, whether it's judicial, whether it's economy, whether it's university life, whether it's Hollywood culture and entertainment, or whether it's Wall Street, or whether it's Silicon Valley, it's all under assault from this evil totalitarian regime. When you lay this out, Ava, I got to tell you, it's got to make every American just shudder at the deep penetration that the CCP has gotten in every aspect of American life. And Wall Street, which is funding them, is complicit in the whole thing. It's scary. Interesting. Uh, so, yeah, they're getting getting more and more traction. And... Do I have Bannon here walking into that third anniversary event? I think I do. Yeah, he just in the past week, Steve Bannon, who, of course, served for a short time in the Trump administration and then um, and before that was very active with the, the Trump campaign that got him elected. And he's still a Trump backer. And then he faced a variety of charges for which Trump finally pardoned him. But along with Miles Guo, the co one of the guys who helped found the NFSC, they're, he's facing more legal challenges still, as I'm sure you're all aware. There was a chance that he could end up back in jail. And Miles Guo, he is still in jail. Um, in fact, here's Miles Guo here. I've got a clip of him. Miles Guo here reveals how Neil Shen, the CEO of Sequoia Capital, is related to the CCP's assassination of Nobel Prize winner, Chinese-American quantum computing physicist Zhang Shusheng. And this is, well, this is the way they're portraying it anyway on this NFC, NFSC site. And this is going somewhere, folks, so stick with me here. I'll bring this up. Masayoshi Sun said, if there is any Chinese businessman he reached back, it's Neil Shen, not Jack Ma. He said Neil Shen is a role model for him to learn from. Neil Shen is beyond. Zhang Shouqing, he got in touch with Neil Shen because of the Shanghai gang, and Neil Shen put a lot of hope in him. Shouqing's value has brought Neil Shen countless money. The CCP's Quantum Computer Center, Quantum Computer Economic Research and Development, and Quantum Computer Application Center were all created by Neil Shen together with him. When Shouqing went to Hong Kong, they did a couple of kickstart funding show. 
Our fund manager said that he is a scientist. He's very naive. He doesn't even know how much money Nielsen took away from their project. Do you know who are the business partners of Sequoia Capital? Among the 11 most powerful families in the United States, nine are its business partners. Including the ones in the White House, I don't need to say their names. At this moment, the 11 families all gathered in Long Island, very close to where I am. President Trump is holding a fundraiser there tonight, and they are all here. At the Janissons, nine of the 11 families are partners of Sequoia Capital. People like Neil Shen and Zhang Lei are so-called the Yale Gang of Chinese elites. China's high-tech products, including DJI, are all started by Neil Shen. Jack Ma is nobody if compared to Neil Shen. Masayoshi Sun said, if there is any Chinese businessman he respects, it's Neil Shen, not Jack Ma. He said Neil Shen is a role model for him to learn from. Neil Shen is beyond the good way or evil way. He's the way. He can create the way for you to success. This is why Sequoia controls more than half of China's business. Most of the Chinese scientists in Silicon Valley only studies knowledges, but they don't know the world. Look at the history of Silicon Valley of the United States. There have been competition and struggle in, and that's okay. But what the CCP did is evil assassinations and murders, which has crossed the bottom lines. This is not just war. This is called unrestricted warfare. Without leaving a trace, the CCP can kill anyone, make anyone's family disappear, or make them sick, and steals technology. This is the power of evil. So, Miles Guo is in is in jail. Um, Steve Bannon is lobbying to have him released from jail, and that's why when he stands up and speaks, it's um, free Miles Guo, free Miles Guo. To Steve Bannon and supporters of the NFSC, the new federation, federal state of China, is what this group is called. Miles Guo is a political prisoner. So anyway, I, I'm sure that most of you are probably not familiar with what the heck is going on. But the Justice Department, the United States Attorney's Office, I have this information from them. And this is what they have, this is why he's in jail. It says here, politics is getting so nasty. Hoke Wan Kwok, a.k.a. Miles Guo, arrested for orchestrating over $1 billion fraud conspiracy. So what's that all about? Well, cryptocurrency essentially is what it comes down to. They had issued... Miles Guo had a had his own cryptocurrency, Himalaya coins. Um, it says here, Damian Williams, the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York, and Michael J. Driscoll, Assistant Director in charge of the New York Field Office of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, announced the unsealing of a 12-count indictment charging Ho Wan Kwok, a.k.a. Miles Guo, a.k.a. Miles Kwok, a.k.a. Guo Weng Gui, a.k.a. Brother Seven, a.k.a. The Principal, and King Ming Jay, a.k.a. William Jay, with various wire fraud, securities fraud, bank fraud, and money laundering charges. Jay, who is Kwok's financier, is also charged with obstruction of justice. The charges in the indictment arise from an alleged sprawling and complex scheme by the defendants and others to solicit investments in various entities and programs through false statements and representations to hundreds of thousands of Quok's online followers. 
as alleged Kwok and Xi misappropriated hundreds of millions of dollars in fraudulently obtained funds during the course of their conspiracy. Kwok was arrested this morning in New York, New York, and will be presented this afternoon. Xi is currently at large. This is dated back in March, by the way. And Miles Guo is still in custody. That is because they the conditions for bail could not be met. Um, says here, and that's because Miles Guo is claiming that he only has about $100,000 in assets, which is odd considering all the money that they've taken in. In addition, Mr. Williams announced that between September 2022 and March 2023, the U.S. government seized approximately $634 million from 21 different bank accounts. The $634 million constitutes proceeds of Guac's alleged fraud, which the government will seek to forfeit. Today, law enforcement also seized assets that were purchased with proceeds of Guac's alleged fraud, including a Lamborghini Aventador SVJ. U.S. Attorney Damian Williams said, as alleged, Ho Wan Kwok, known to many as Miles Guo, led a complex conspiracy to defraud thousands of his online followers out of over $1 billion. Kwok is charged with lining his pockets with the money he stole, including buying himself and his close relatives a 50,000-square-foot mansion, a $3.5 million Ferrari, and even two $36,000 mattresses and financing a $37 million luxury yacht. As alleged, Kwok lied to his victims and promised them outsized returns if they invested or provided money to GTV, his so-called Himalaya Farm Alliance, G-Clubs, and the Himalaya Exchange, which is a cryptocurrency business. Kwok is further alleged with laundering hundreds of millions of stolen funds to conceal the conspiracy's illegal activities and continue the fraud's operations. It goes on. It was a farm loan program, Himalaya Farm Alliance, which Kwok organized and promoted, was a collective of informal groups, each known as, far, as a farm, located in various cities around the world. Kwok, Xi, and others working on their behalf and at the direction obtained these funds by making further misrepresentations to the investors in the GTV private placement and fraudulently soliciting further investments, this time in the form of loans to a farm and promising that such loans would be convertible into GTV common stock at a conversion rate of one share per dollar loan. On or about July 22, 2020, in a video distributed via social media, Quack promoted the farm loan program. Anyway, it goes on here. There's a picture of his yacht, which is also seen, I think, in the, uh, the video that Steve Bannon runs at the beginning of the war room where they play that let's take down the CCP song. And they've got that thing where at the beginning where he's, the guy's pretending to like, he's just boxing at the camera. There's a, oh, that's a Bugatti. Oh my goodness. That's a high dollar car. 
Kwok Xi and others known and unknown fraudulently obtained more than approximately $262 million in victim funds through the Himalaya Exchange, a purported cryptocurrency ecosystem accessible on the internet. The Himalaya Exchange included a purported stablecoin called the Himalaya Dollar and a trading coin called Himalaya Coin. In videos distributed via social media, Quack trumpeted the prospects and valuation of the Himalaya exchange and both HCN and HDO, which he publicly described as cryptocurrencies. For example, in a video posted on the internet on or about October 20th, 2021, Quack falsely stated, quote, if the H coin is worthless, the issuer of H coin can sell all 20% of the gold, exchange it to you and become your money or take all the value of 20% gold and ask everyone to unify it and make it yours. And if anyone loses money, I can say that I will compensate 100%. I give you 100%. Whoever loses money, I will bear it. The initial coin offering of HCN and HDO occurred on or about November 1st, 2021. HCN began trading at 10 cents and within approximately two weeks, the Himalaya Exchange website claimed that each HCN purportedly was worth approximately $27, which represented a 26,900% increase in value and a total value of approximately $27 billion. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of money out of thin air. JE also falsely claimed to media outlets that a three and a half billion pound Ferrari was purchased via the Himalaya Exchange. In truth, the Himalaya Exchange employee sent the Ferrari broker an international bank wire to cover the cost of the Ferrari, while also processing a corresponding transaction on the Himalaya Exchange to create the false appearance that the purchase had taken place using HDO in order to show HDO was easily tradable and to promote the Himalaya Exchange. The buyer of the Ferrari was a close relative of Quack. Wow. Big money. So is he guilty or innocent? I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what law specifically might have been broken here. All of this still has to be proven in court. And of course, with the NFSC, the new federal state of China activist group. You have to wonder how much of this is political, especially with Steve Bannon involved, Trump supporter, Biden administration. We've seen them going after Bannon. Is this simply politically motivated or is there real truth in the charges? A lot of this cryptocurrency stuff gets pretty shady Pretty shady. Um, there is do I have the video? Yeah, I have a video here of I just have to find it. A video promoting that cryptocurrency. Let's see if I can find it here for you. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, Guo sold unregistered crypto securities before bankruptcy, it says here. 
And here's the video that was used to promote Himalaya coin. Just to give you a sense of where this is going. And I am starting to connect some dots because of this story to some other things going on that might lead to some other stories in the days ahead. So pay close attention. For There's that video that Bannon runs at the beginning of his
Interesting. Let's just analyze what he said here in his subtitles. Freedom sounds familiar to me, it says here, but annoyingly getting far away from me. The man with charms and energy. Oops. Let's go back. The man with charms and energy only exists in the past. Working hard desperately only to fight for a living. Wealth is their rain check, but always out of touch. A beautiful illusion full of traps behind. All kinds of... Housing prices crashes to hell. Raise my head. Full darkness covers the road ahead. There's that video that Bannon plays at the beginning of his show. So they're going to have some gold reserves attached to this, they say. There he is. Smokes a lot of cigars. Not good for you. Shouldn't smoke, man. Security guarded by the most advanced encrypted technology, it says. No one can take wealth away from you. Stable coin, floating coin, unparalleled design under the heaven. 20% gold reserve attaches to the value. Destroy the machine to suck you dry. Never be money slavers again. Himalaya Federal Reserve welcomes you forever. The brilliant future Himalaya coin. There's on that yacht smoking another cigar. And another cigar. Interesting. So it's these charges all center around that. That uh, cryptocurrency. All this as the NFSC is rising in prominence, gaining more membership. And here's Steve Bannon at this week's third anniversary of the NFSC. And he addresses the incarceration of Miles Guo in this speech. 
Miles Groves locked in a prison over in Brooklyn. I want to make sure he can hear us. Take down the CCP. The CCP. Take down the CCP. Take down the CCP. Take down the CCP. Take down the CCP. Free Miles Quo. Free Miles Quo. I can't hear you. Free Miles Quo. Free Miles Quo. Free Miles Quo. What is our task and purpose? To take down the CCP. You think Miles can hear us? Do you think Miles can hear us? I don't know if this Remember was from this past was week. Years this ago. was sent to me as though it was this past week, but it says here it's dated June 4th of this year. So this may be old. I'm I'm not sure. It was sent to me and I was told this was this past week. I'll look, but uh, this was their third anniversary speech. Anyway, here you go. He was in a prison too. Remember, he got rolled up. Why did they all get rolled up? On May 26th and 27th. Why? 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 Because the students of the Fine Arts Academy in Beijing started to build the goddess of democracy. And the corrupt transnational criminal organization that is the Chinese Communist Party, by the way, backed by the world's elites, could not take that. They, They tolerated what went on at Tiananmen until those young art students and those young protesters started to put up the goddess of democracy. Why couldn't they do that? They understood that that was an image as powerful as the Statue of Liberty. And that would incite a revolution throughout mainland China. And that's when they came up with the plan to eradicate it. They didn't care if they killed 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 people, of which they probably did massacre. Is there any doubt in your mind about that? I can't hear you. And they can't hear you in Beijing. I want them to hear you not just in the federal prison here where Miles is, chained up and shackled like a dog. What's the difference between what's happening to Miles Guo today and what happened to him under the Chinese Communist Party in Tiananmen? What's the difference? There is no difference. I want these criminals in Beijing right now on the anniversary of Tiananmen with the blood of Chinese patriots in that square. I want them to hear you. Take down the CCP. Take down the CCP. Free Miles Guo. Free Miles Guo. Free Miles Guo. Free Miles Guo. So yeah, that was just over four months ago. It's still ongoing, but as I say, the NFSC getting a lot of traction on social media just in the past, especially the past couple of weeks i'm seeing this stuff pop up and people are sending me the stuff now too and here's the um website for the himalaya exchange still appears to be operating even though miles guo is in jail so i guess you can still set up a an account says here the Himalaya dollar is an Ethereum-based ERC-1404 token that has backward compatibility to the ERC-20. Our stablecoin is fixed to the United States dollar with the backing of a reserve consisting of USD and cash-equivalent assets. While the market price of Himalaya coin may fluctuate, Himalaya dollar's USD fixed value offers a safe haven for both traders and investors. HCN and HDO will be exchangeable via Himalaya Pay V2.0 
and also through the relevant trading markets at the Himalaya Exchange. says the Himalaya dollar combines the cutting edge blockchain technology with the robust features of a stable coin. HDO is giving you back the power. We're making it possible to move digital currency around the world from anywhere instantly and securely. It's time to claim sovereignty. There's a key word over your finances. Frictionless transactions are the future. We're opening up the world economy and breathe, breaking down financial borders. Himalaya coin, invitation only, private token sale. For the initial issuance, Himalaya International Financial Group Limited will issue a certain amount that is available for subscription via registration. The initial offering of HCN is being conducted on a private placement basis by invitation only and will not be available to all members of the public, only pre-notified persons. Pre-placement participants may participate in the initial sale of HCN credits. For further details on the HCN issuance, please see the Himalaya coin white paper. Interesting stuff. And it ties right into some other things that have been happening right here in Canada, where people have been talking about something very similar to this that I've been getting wind of. Which... I would approach with extreme caution. Himalaya Pay, available soon. The Himalaya Exchange. You know, in Canada, in uh, some provinces, the Chinese-based Binance Exchange was banned. I had an account on Binance. It seemed to work fairly well. They are huge but they did not meet the standards of the Ontario Securities and Exchange Commission. So they had to divest all of their deposits and holdings in Ontario, and they vacated the province. I don't know if that was fair or not, but that's what happened. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world of cryptocurrencies that is very shaky. Some cryptos... Not uh, not Bitcoin, but other ones created by people out of thin air. And, uh, and then they go bust and the people steal away into the night, never to be heard from again in many cases. There was a big company out there called USI Tech. They took in uh, millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars from people. And... Nobody got their money back. The uh, They were shut down all over Canada and the United States. And when that happened, the people who set that company up, just they made so many promises to people of unrealistic returns. And then in the end, people ended up with nothing. Some people lost their life savings. Lots of people. Now, I can't say for sure what's going on with this. They say they have some gold reserves attached to it, but the... Attorneys in the United States, they're alleging that Miles Guo was using the money to finance his lavish lifestyle. That's what they're asserting. Not providing stability for those who invested in Himalaya coin thus far. 
I don't know. I don't know. I'm just giving you the information. I'm not drawing conclusions one way or the other. But now he can't raise enough money, apparently, for his bail. But had cars like this that he was driving around in. That is a Bugatti. That is serious money. Really serious money. These are the penalties he's facing if convicted. Conspiracy to commit wire fraud, bank fraud, securities fraud, money laundering, five years maximum. Wire fraud, GTV, private placement, 20 years maximum. Securities fraud, 20 years. Wire fraud, farm loan program, 20 years. Securities fraud, farm loan program, 20 years. Wow. International promotional money laundering, 20 years. The statutory maximum sentences are prescribed by Congress and are provided here for informational purposes only as any sentencing of the defendant will be determined by a judge, it says. It says here, if you believe you are a victim of Quok and J.E.'s fraud, please find more information here. And there's a link. The case is being handled by the Complex Frauds and Cybercrime Unit of the Office's Criminal Division. Assistant U.S. Attorneys Ryan B. Finkel, Juliana N. Murray, and Micah F. Ferguson are in charge of the prosecution. The allegations in the indictment are merely accusations, and the defendants are presumed innocent unless and until proven guilty. Oh, boy. Wow, 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 wow. So that's what a lot of this has been about, if you maybe weren't aware. The NFSC. And this is highly political as well as legal. It seems lawfare is uh, a major tool being used by political groups and government these days. But this might not be lawfare. This might just be straight up law. <laughs> I don't know. You'll have to assess. But, uh, you know, for Steve Bannon and the NFSC, the members of the new federal state of China, which has the sole objective of taking down the Chinese Communist Party and bringing in a new government in China that is, I guess, more conservative, more democratic, uh, a new system. They want to overthrow that government. Um, and as part of that effort, they have a whole political machine operating now. And part of that involves public relations, information warfare. And that's why they had somebody produce this music video. This is Kill Will and DVS 7.0. The title, Government Gangsters Free Miles Guo. This is the official music video. Let's let it roll and check it out. 
So I am in no way suggesting that anybody should invest any money in Himalaya coin or in anything else. I'm not giving anybody any advice, period. So uh, you want to invest in something, you do so at your own risk. Don't take anything I'm saying here as any indication that I'm saying you should or should not do anything. That's not what this is about. I'm just giving you the information. Because I have been aware of some of this, but just on the periphery of it and not paying close enough attention. But I am now. This has my attention. 
this has my attention. Hmm. So this is about politics. It is about money. It is about capitalism versus communism. It's about Trump. It's about the national debt. It's about cryptocurrencies. It's about the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency. It's about sovereignty. This, of course, appeals very much to certain, you know, to people with a certain political persuasion, for sure. And when we had um, Bitcoin Ben on the other night, it became very clear to me, too. I'm learning as I go, folks, that cryptocurrencies within the freedom community. Yeah, it's becoming an integral part of a plan, I would say. The Himalaya coin here, other plans over there. I'm connecting dots. I'm connecting dots. Yes, I am. Be careful with your cash. Embrace for the future. Because these guys see something coming. So do I. We've been talking about it. So does Vladimir Putin. So do people who are smart with money, but be careful who you follow. Be very, very careful. I'll be right back. Trump back on the campaign trail, another rally in Iowa. Big turnout. And uh, while he was there, he was, I think he's going to get in in this section here of this speech into the issue of climate change, which is timely given that John Kerry just went to COP28 and said that the United States is not going to build any more coal plants. And that uh, the U.S. is all in, like other countries, on major reductions in methane emissions, which affects petrochemical production, farming, and so on. Here's, let's go, here's President Trump. 
all over the country, really. We've never seen anything like it. We did great with 2016. We did much better with 2020. They hate to, the fake news hates to hear that, but we did much better with 2020. Millions and millions of votes more. But the enthusiasm now is even greater than that. I've never seen anything like it. And you understand what I'm talking about because we have to take our country back. Because the fact is, Americans don't like fascists. We don't like communists. We don't like tyrants. We don't like corrupt politicians like Joe Biden. Without question, this is the worst president, most corrupt president in the history of the United States of America, without question. And I promise you this, if you put me back in the White House, their reign will be over and America will be a free nation once again. We're going to be a free nation. Before Crooked Joe, no president in history ever weaponized the full force of the Justice Department, local attorney generals and district attorneys against American citizens or people running for office. No president ever tried to deface the Constitution to get the other party's candidate, me, thrown off the ballot. You know, they've been working on that very hard. You know, they always say disinformation and misinformation, almost the same, but not quite. But disinformation and misinformation, they always say, we want to really run against Trump. If they wanted to run against me, they wouldn't have indicted me four times and fought like hell to keep me off the ballot. But the fake news and the stupid people at the Wall Street Journal editorial board, they said the other day, well, they really want to run against Trump. Look, they said that in 2016 and we won. They said that in 2020, and we did much better than anybody. We got the most votes of any sitting president in history. Many millions of votes more than we got in 2016. We did much better. 2016 was good, but we did much better in 2020. The last person they want to run. So, but you have the stupid media, the dishonest media, the fake news media saying, well, you know, they really want to run against Trump. They don't want to run. And by the way, we're about 60 points up on DeSanctimonious and 65 points up on Nikki Haley. But these attacks on the 14th Amendment are interesting because they had no case and we've won every single one of them. And we've gone before some major leftist judges and uh, we've won every single one of them. But they attack and attack and attack and they think you're going to you know, we're going to demean. They're going to want to demean and hurt and harm and destroy your reputation so you can't run. But in this case, so far, we got to keep it that way. It's backfired. And to be honest with you, I'm much more popular now than I would have been if they if they didn't do it. If they didn't do it. You've actually got the best poll number. They did a story the other day, one of the big uh, fake newspapers, and they said, uh, this is the biggest he's ever been, and we have to do it. Look, we have to carry it on for another 11 months. Think of it, less than a year now, and uh, 45 days to caucus time in Iowa. You started all, and remember, I said it before, I kept you there, nobody else, I kept you there. Not your governor, not anybody, I kept you there. And you're gonna be there for a long time. You're gonna be number one. You're gonna be first in the nation.
And no president ever sent the FBI to raid the home of his opponent for crimes that he himself actually committed. He committed crimes. This campaign is a righteous crusade to liberate our republic from Biden and the criminals and the Biden administration. They're criminals. They're criminals that think they can do whatever they want, break any law, tell any lie, ruin any life, trash any norm, and get away with anything they want. They want to control your speech, and they want to control your social media. They want to control what car you drive. How about that? Who wants to buy an electric car? They're for sale for nothing. Well, it's okay if you want to go about five miles away from your house, but get back quick. They don't go far. They want to talk about your dishwashers and how much water you're going to have in your dishwasher, even though they don't work. And all of the other things that you have that were so precious and dear and that you never really appreciated until now because they want to take them away. Your heating and cooling in your house. They want to change it. They want to change everything. These people are sick. These people are sick. Not in his house, right? Not in his <laughs> One year from now, the American people are going to fire crooked Joe Biden and the Democrat Party in a political earthquake that will echo all around the world, all around the world. Once and for all, we're going to end the era of hoaxes and witch hunts and censorship and lawless political persecutions. We're going to save our democracy and we're going to bring our country back from hell because our country's in hell laughed at all over the world. Just this week, Biden's Homeland Security Secretary even admitted that they are weaponizing artificial intelligence to target American citizens for political speech. Did you hear that? He admitted it. Well, at least he was honest. When I'm reelected, I will cancel Biden's artificial intelligence executive order and ban the use of AI to censor the speech of American citizens on day one. All of these Biden attacks on democracy and freedom are happening because the radical left Democrats know that in a fair fight, they're going to lose in a landslide. I mean, think of it, all of the things they do, who would ever vote for any of these policies? Open borders, mental institutions pouring into our country. Under the Trump administration, we built the greatest economy in the history of the world. There's never been an economy like we had, with soaring incomes, rising wages, and household net worth hitting the highest level ever recorded, by far greater than now and by far greater than at any other time. When I was your president, the 30-year mortgage rate reached an all-time low of 2.65%. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound good? Today, you can't get the money no matter what you want to pay, and you can't buy a house. Inflation was basically zero, and we had gasoline down to $1.87 a gallon. The American dream was alive and well like never before in our country. People were thrilled. They wanted to get jobs. They had the best jobs, the best job market. Nobody's ever seen an economy like we had, but thanks to crooked Joe Biden and his goons that surround him. Today, the American dream is dead. It's a dead dream. In the past three years, thank you very much, darling. I love you too, actually. <laughs>
In the past three years, Biden and the radical left Democrats spent $12 trillion wasting colossal amounts of your money on socialist scams that cause cumulative inflation of over 20 percent. Think of that. As a result, the average 30-year mortgage rate is now 7.8 percent, but you can't get it, so it doesn't matter. The typical family lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in purchasing power when buying a home. And thanks to Biden's insane Green New Deal, families can't even afford to buy a car. You can't afford to buy a car. Who'd like to go out and buy a car? Although you might get one electric one now. They were very expensive, but now they, they can't sell them. They can't sell them. People want to be able to drive for about 45 minutes, yeah? But while Biden has crushed the American dream, we will revive the American dream, and we will bring it back bigger, better, stronger than ever before, and we're going to bring it back fast. We'll bring it back to us. It happened very quickly. We're going to drill. You know that. We're going to drill, baby, drill, drill. We're going to get your energy down. We're going to seal up those borders so tight. And we're going to have the largest deportation of very bad people. Very bad people. Shouldn't be in this country. Ever in our country's history. I will quickly end Joe Biden's inflation nightmare, rebuild the greatest economy on record, and I will not rest until your family can afford a beautiful home and a brand new beautiful car of your choice. Combustion, electric, any way you want it, you're going to have lots of choice. And that's the way it should be. I'm not saying electric cars are bad. They're, they have problems. They have big problems. There is a danger to them and they don't go far. I mean, it's a big problem. You say, let's drive over to Ohio. You don't want to stop seven times, right? I'd like to sort of say, darling, let's now fill it up when you get there, or maybe when you get back, if you have the right car. With your vote, well, 2025 is going to be. Look, it's going to be the biggest election in our history. It will be. I think 2025 is a chance to be one of the strongest and most prosperous years of the history of our country. We're going to do this fast. You know, drilling goes fast. Those guys know how to drill, but they stopped them from drilling. They, I was very proud, Anwar in Alaska, the biggest oil field probably in the world, probably bigger than Saudi Arabia, but very big. And they closed it up for 60 years. Reagan tried and everybody tried. Bush probably tried. Who knows what he did? I doubt it. I doubt it. But Reagan tried to get everybody. They couldn't get Anwar. I got it done. And the first week in office, they knocked out Anwar. They knocked out the pipeline, right? They knocked out our pipeline, that the Keystone Pipeline, Keystone XL. They knocked it out, 48,000 jobs. And those pipeline workers who love Trump, by the way, they should fire their union people because the union people endorsed Biden. And the following day after the election, he terminated 48,000 jobs. And those people went bankrupt. Those people suffered greatly. It's no wonder crooked Joe Biden and the far left lunatics are desperate to stop us by any means possible. They don't care how. They don't care. They don't have any scruples. They're weaponizing law enforcement for high level election interference because we're beating them so badly in the polls. You take a look. The Washington Post had us up 11. Washington Post. And they apologized to it. Can you believe it? They said there must be something wrong. He's up 11. Then the following day, they announced we were up 12. And the Harvard-Harris poll just came out. Just this is a brand new one. We're leading the field with 67, with DeSanctimonious at 9. And Bert Brain is at 8. She's at. 
She was another beauty. She said, I will never run against you, sir. I will never run. You know, I mean, look, the lieutenant governor of South Carolina, Henry McMaster. Did anybody ever hear of him? He's great. So he was a lieutenant governor. He backed me. She backed another. I'm not going to say because he's a friend of mine now, but she backed somebody else. I thought she'd back me because I was always very nice. But, you know, sometimes nice in politics doesn't matter. And Henry McMaster was great. He was a lieutenant governor. I want to make him governor. So what I did, I moved her over there. He became governor. He's done a fantastic job. And I got her. You know, she was fine. Bird brain. There's a reason for that name, isn't there? And the other guy, I got him elected. He was elected because of me. And he forgot very quickly. I got him the nomination. And I got him past a very hot politician at the time, who turned out a couple of years later to be a crackhead. But at the time... At the time, he was a very hot politician. They said, he's going to be president someday. And I said, well, Ron said to me, I, I don't think I can beat him, sir. I don't think I, I said, you beat him. Look, you just got the nomination. Thank you very much, President Trump. You just got the nomination. It's very interesting. He was losing by so much. I said, everybody, if George Washington and Abraham Lincoln came back to endorse him, it wouldn't have meant a thing. He had no chance. And I endorsed him. He went up like 40 or 50 points almost immediately, and he ended up winning. The people that he was running against, a good person. I didn't know him, so I didn't feel so guilty. I didn't know him. Somebody said he was a rhino, so it makes me feel better. But the, the person that he was running against was, was up by numbers that were not beatable. And when I uh, came out and endorsed him, it was a whole different ballgame. And then I got him passed. We did two or three rallies. I think we had the lowest crowd was 45, 48,000 people. We had... Tremendous rallies for Ron to Sanctimonious. That's why I call him Sanctimonious. I should take the D out, Sanctimonious, but I want to have a little relationship to his name. Remember, he tried to change his name. Do you remember? He tried to change his name to Ron D. DeSantis. It's Ron DeSantis, DeSantis. And I said, I sent him a note never change your name in the middle of a campaign. It's not a good thing. But what we did, what we did was pretty amazing. We got him elected. And then four years later, the press is screaming at him, screaming, uh, will you run against the president? And he said, I have no comment. I said, he has no comment. That means he's running. We got to hit this guy. And my genius is backstage. I get paid all this money. They said, sir, uh, don't bother talking about because people don't care about loyalty. I said, I think they do care about loyalty. See, I think they do. I think they care a lot about loyalty. And we hit him very hard, and he's, uh, he's been falling out of the air like a very seriously wounded bird, right? To the ground. And it's a very pleasant thing to see. Now, it looks like he's gonzo, but we never want to say that we got to get this thing finished. I never want to say. You know, on television today, they said the primaries are over. I said, don't listen to that. Don't listen. Nothing's over. I've seen things that are over and bad things can happen. You got to get to the polls. You got to get to caucus and you got to do your job and we got to win. And then we got to focus on November and we got to beat this crooked guy that's in office. And I never spoke to about him this way. I was respectful, you know, modestly. How can you be respectful of this guy? He can't, he, he can't, he doesn't know anything. He can't put two sentences together and he's negotiating our nuclear package with Kim Jong-un, who won't talk to him, by the way. He won't even talk to him. North Korea won't talk to him. But he likes me. He likes me. You know, for four years, you had no trouble with North Korea, did you? No trouble whatsoever. Started a little bit rough, right? Rocket man, little rocket man. 
He said, we've got a red button on my desk, he said. I said, I have a red button also, but mine's bigger, better, and it works. Mine works. And then, no. And then I got a call from North Korea, and they wanted to meet. We met, and we really got along. We got a great relationship. You know, the press hates to hear that. They say when you have a great relationship. It's good to have a good relationship with people that have nuclear weapons and lots of other things. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But we got along, and uh, President Xi, can you imagine President Xi, who's a piece of granite, he's tough and smart, he's at the top of his game, and this guy walks into his office and talks. He walks into his office and falls asleep. That's what happens. You know, I said to uh, President Xi of China, I said, could I ask you a question? Do you have much of a drug problem? No, 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 no. We have no drug problem. And what do you attribute that to? He said, quick trial. I said, what's quick trial? I sort of knew, you know, but I said, what's, I want to be nice, right? I said, what's quick trial? He said, we immediately give trials to drug dealers. And if they're guilty, which is probably about 119%, I would say they don't have a great chance. We execute them. And because of that, we no longer have a drug. They used to have a massive drug problem years ago. You know, every drug dealer is responsible on average for the life of the dealer uh, for killing 500 people. And by the way, destroying families, terribly destroying families. And uh, if we want to get rid of drugs, I'm sorry. I don't know that this country is ready for it. I think you should be ready for it because you take a look. But that's what you have to do with with drug dealers, with drug dealers. But we're totally dominating Biden in the general election, beating him by six points in the Harris poll and uh, a whopping 18 points in some other polls. Can you imagine 18 points? A friend of mine called me who's not in politics. He says, could I ask you a question, President? Why? How come you're only winning by 18? He doesn't realize they have certain constituencies that bring them up to like 38 or 39. Actually, brings them up to 38, 39, and he's at 35. So that tells you, in other words, that's pretty bad, but uh, they do. They have a sort of a base of almost 40, and we don't have that base. We have to go out and earn it. And like in 2016, we just ran the whole East Coast of the country, and that made up for California, which I actually believe that if they didn't have rigged elections out there, if they didn't have all the paper ballot, you know, they send out like 36 million ballots, and nobody knows where the hell they're going to or coming from. I think a few people know where they're going to. And a few people know where they're coming from. But I think if you had a real election and Jesus came down and God came down and said, I'm going to be the scorekeeper here, I think we'd win there. I think we'd win in Illinois and I think we'd win in New York, which is all places that in theory. I mean, who in New York? When you see what happened, hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants pouring out all over Madison Avenue, Fifth Avenue. People are so angry. Even Democrat politicians now are going after Biden. The mayor is going after him. They're all going after him. But who would say that this is acceptable? I think you can win New York. I think you can win New Jersey. I think we can win Virginia. People that states that in theory would be with. But, but I have a different theory. I think for years we could have won them. These elections are rigged. Our elections are totally rigged. And we got to do something about it. The radical left Democrats rigged the presidential election of 2020, and we're not going to allow them to rig the presidential election of 2024 and destroy our country totally.
Every time the radical left Democrats, Marxists, communists, and fascists indict me, I consider it a great badge of honor. I do, because I'm being, thank you very much, I appreciate this, but I'm being indicted for you. Thanks a lot, I appreciate it. Now, I'm sure nobody in this crowd ever heard of uh, Al Capone. Nobody. Who would ever? Scarface, right? He's got a scar from here to here, meaning he had, right? This was not from playing tiddlywinks, like tiddlywinks. This was, this was tough. This was tough stuff. He only got indicted once. He got indicted. I got indicted four times because I'm questioning a crooked election. But we're not questioning it. We know the results. We know it. And when we go through courts, if we ever even have to do it, because you have presidential privilege and also if we ever, we should never have to do that. But if we do, we want to redo the election only from the standpoint we want that election. We want to look at it very carefully. We have so much information. There was so much corruption in that election. You take a look. It's incredible. Just the other day in Georgia, 3,600 votes that were duplicated so that you had double votes. Almost all of them were for sleepy Joe Biden, right? Every single vote. You take a look what they do and what they play and what the Democrats have done for a long time. But it's a it's a disaster. And we have to get in and we have to clean it up. And we want to go paper ballots. We want to go voter ID. Same day election. No more mail in ballots. We don't want mail in ballots. Never forget, our enemies want to take away my freedom because I will never let them take away. I'm never going to let it happen. Your freedom. They want to silence me because I will never let them silence you. And in the end, they're not after me. They're after you. I just happen to be standing in the way. That's true. You know, if I wouldn't be running for office or if I was in fifth place or whatever. Oh, I felt badly, though. I just saw a poll come out in New Hampshire. Ron is in fifth place. <laughs> well, that's a hell of a laugh. That's the guy that's voting for Trump. I'll tell you. He is. He's my friend, actually. But that is one hell of a laugh you have. I've never heard that before. But no, he's in fifth place in New Hampshire. But I wish him luck. We wish him a lot of luck. We love disloyal people, don't we? This is far more than a campaign that we're doing. We have Everyone involved. This is the greatest political movement in the history of our country. Probably the greatest political movement in the history of the world. There's never been anything like that. You know, there was a man, Pat Buchanan, a good guy, conservative guy. And you know, it's not that we're, you know, Pat Buchanan. Look at that. Good. Good guy. Wow. Young people, they know him. He did well in New Hampshire. He came in, I believe, second place to Bush. Bush. He came in second place. And that gave him a massive career. I mean, it was an amazing life he had, and uh, he's an older guy now. Uh, but that gave him, like, an amazing political career. He was a great pundit. Came in second place in one state. We've won everything. We've won everything, including the presidency. We actually won the presidency twice, but we've won everything. And for the second, you know, for the second time, I won every state. I won every single state in the primaries and then went on to get many millions of votes more than we did the first. Uh, the totally corrupt New York Times said to me, somebody asked me a question, what went wrong the second time? I said, what went wrong? We got millions of more votes. You know what went wrong? The election was crooked. That's what went wrong. And who would have thought it would happen? 
I campaigned. I did like seven rallies in one day. I did like five rallies. And these are big rallies. These are big. And this is just for our friends. We're going to start the rallies when it gets a little bit warmer. Because honestly, you have no place where you can even have them because we'll get 50, 60,000 people. And we know because those are front row Joes. Am I right? But we're going to start them when the weather gets a little bit warmer. But uh, now, in all fairness, that's not going to help you because you've got January coming up. So it's not going to help you guys, but we're going to have very big ones. But who would ever thought a thing like this would happen where you, you know, you go out and you run and you think you're doing well and you're getting 50, 60, 70,000 people. We went to South Carolina recently, a couple of months ago. We had 83,000 people show up. We went to Texas. We had over 100,000 people. So you go home and you think you're going to sit down, watch television and watch this great election. Now, that happened in 2016 because we got them unprepared. And they said, we'll never let this happen again. We're never going to let it happen again. Hillary Clinton said, why didn't they do that for me? And they actually tried. They actually tried. What happened is they had no idea the level of popularity that we had. That's what happened. They did try. They underestimated us. They underestimated us. These are very dishonest, very crooked people. But with your help, we're going to keep fighting for Iowa families. As Nobody's fought more for the farmer than I have. Nobody's fought harder for Iowa. Nobody. There's nobody. Together, we ended the NAFTA disaster, the worst, the single worst trade deal ever made in our country, and replaced it with the best trade deal ever made in our country, the USMCA. It's the best deal ever made. In fact, so good that Mexico and Canada want to renegotiate the deal right now. And I, I would tell our people in Washington, don't do it. Don't do it. We suffered with NAFTA for decades. It was such a horrible deal. Do you know they made typos in that deal? Nobody knows this. They made typos or numbers. The numbers were much bigger. They say they were typos. They didn't even change them. They just accepted them for years and years. We paid much more because of typos that were made that nobody wanted to go back and correct. Legally, you're allowed to correct the typo, but nobody wanted to do it. Nobody wants to talk about that. The worst deal we ever had, NAFTA, probably the best deal we made was the deal I made with China, but I don't talk about it because of COVID. But we made a deal with China that's going to buy $50 billion worth of our product. And they agreed to 15. And I heard 15. I said, what's the number 15? I thought they said 50. It's true. It's true. I said, how much are we doing here? They said 15. So I thought they said 50. So during the course of the negotiation, I said, uh, are you close to getting that $50 billion number? And they said, no, it's 15. I said, no, it's not. You told me 50. They said, no, we told you 15. I said, no, you told me 50. Here's the story. Just go and tell them 50. So they told them 50, and they agreed to it. Do you believe it? That's when I told you in Iowa, stay with me. Because, you know, we went through a little period during that negotiation, right? It was a little nasty out there with China. You know, China is a seriously good negotiator. They're tough and smart. And they have tremendous, and it's amazing. Their energy is tremendous. They want to make these deals where they destroy you. But I said, just hang in, hang in. And the farmers did. And I had about 30 farmers in the White House. It was incredible. And I said to them, many groups, manufacturers, but this case was farmers. I said to them, you know, I'm going to get you so much subsidy from other countries, and you're going to have subsidy. You're going to have everything that you always wanted. And I was interrupted almost simultaneously by five farmers. Sir, we don't want subsidy. 
We just want a level playing field. That's all we have. That's the only group that ever said that. The other people, they'll take all the subsidy you can get them. They didn't want it. They just want... These guys were, were amazing. This was in the middle of this problem we had with China. I had to turn it off with China. But they said, we don't want subsidies, sir. We want a level playing field because nobody can beat us with a level playing field. I got them much more than a level playing field. And, you know, you had one of the greatest deals ever made. China, $50 billion. Remember I used to say, don't worry, it's going to work out good. I knew where we were going exactly, but it took a little time. You had to be a little bit tough, to put it mildly. They're tough. I said, don't worry, go out and buy larger land, get more land and get bigger tractors. Remember, I said, go out just right now. You can bank on it. Go out and get more land and bigger tractors. And I turned out to be right. I turned out to be right. And I'll tell you what, the Biden administration is running on our fumes. That's all they're running on. They don't have anything. They're doing everything wrong. They're running on our fumes. I then got the $28 billion straight out of the tariffs that I took from China. I took hundreds of billions of dollars in from China. No other president got 10 cents from China. You can look all the way back. No president got 10 cents. They said, we're a developing nation. Brilliant people, brilliant negotiators. No, 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 we are developing it. Well, we're a developing nation, too. Look at our cities. They're falling apart, our Democrat-run cities. We're a developing nation, too. But I got hundreds of billions of dollars in taxes and tariffs from China, and it brought them to the table. And because of that, I was able to get the farmers $28 billion. That's why, you know, I get a lot of heat sometimes. Some of my people, and they're great, they're good people. They mean well. They say, sir, please don't take it for granted that you're going to win Iowa. I said, what do you mean? I got the farmers $28 billion. Of course I'm going to win Iowa. Remember, I came in last time. They said, sir, you sound very conceited. You're saying you're going to win. I said, how the hell can they vote against me? I got them $28 billion. They're going to vote. Do you think Joe Biden's going to get you $28 billion? Any extra money that he gets comes to him and his family. It doesn't come to Iowa. That's been proven, hasn't it? You see, they just found him. $5 billion went to him. Remember during the debate, I said to Joe Biden, I said, how come the mayor of Moscow's wife paid you three and a half million dollars? And Chris Wallace, how's he doing, by the way? Chris Wallace was the moderator. You shouldn't be allowed to ask that question. I said, well, it's true. The mayor of Moscow's wife paid this family $3.5 million. Why did they get it? What did they do that was worth $3.5 million? They weren't able to explain it. Now it's turned out to be a big case. I was right. Chris Wallace, it was like fighting two people. Of course, it was really like fighting one person. <laughs> that was a beauty. But uh, now it's turned out to be a very big, really big subject. He got three and a half million dollars from Moscow and nobody knows why and they can't justify it. What did you do for the three and a half? At least say you did something. There's nothing. They didn't do anything. You know what they did. It's called laundering. Just as I promised, I also fought for Iowa ethanol, issuing a historic rule declaring the E15 would be made available all year round. And also letting them use existing pumps. It doesn't sound like much, not very glamorous for speech, show that you're allowed to use, but that was millions, tens of millions of dollars. They had great pumps, actually better than the new ones. 
and they wanted to know if they could use them, and they weren't allowed to use them under the legislation, and I gave them the right to use the existing pumps. They were actually just as good or better, and they saved hundreds of millions of dollars. But I was able to do that for the farmers and for the state. Rhonda Sanctimonious is a opponent, really a raging opponent of ethanol. He's against ethanol. He fights it. He was fighting it all the time. Now, all of a sudden, he's saying, no, I'm, I'm actually for it. Oh, it's this politician. They're against it when they need it. But you know what? They always go back to their original thought. But I was your ethanol champion for four years in the White House. There was nobody could have kept it like I kept it, including getting it from eight months to 12 months. They could never justify that. I said, why are they only allowed to use it for eight months? They told me something about heat. I said, do me a favor. Just it's fine. We're going to do it for 12. But we did a good job for ethanol. Together, we achieved the most secure border in U.S. history. We built 561 miles of border wall, despite the fact we had to fight the rhinos and the Democrats. You know where I took the money? From the military. I got $700 billion from the military. I said, excuse me, we're taking 10 and we're building the wall because you couldn't get them from the rhinos. Mitch McConnell and these guys, you couldn't get it. He was not good, not good. Uh, you couldn't get it from him. And Paul Ryan was like this real, a real jerk, a real fool, like a stupid fool. But uh, these guys, they wouldn't give it to you. They wouldn't give it. And now they end up giving trillions of dollars to this character, Biden. And he goes around saying, we'll build a bridge, we'll build whatever you want, you know, trying to buy votes. But it's not working because they are down the tubes. What it is doing is causing tremendous inflation. That's what that does. And that's what's happening in our country. And that's what's killing so many families. I also got Mexico to give us 28,000 soldiers. And, you know, free of charge, I said to the president of Mexico, we have to get you to give us soldiers to guard our border while I'm building the border wall because we're building this great wall. It's uh, exactly the wall that Border Patrol. I didn't actually like it. I liked I wanted to have concrete plank like parking garage plank going up in the air, 40 feet, 50 feet up in the air. Perfect. But the Border Patrol didn't want they wanted. They had to have steel on the outside. They wanted concrete and then they wanted rebar. They wanted different materials and they wanted to be able to see through. You had to be able to see through. So I built it as they wanted it, the, everything they wanted. It was actually more expensive doing it that way than my way. And uh, it was amazing how successful it was. And, uh, you know, for those people that like to say, oh, but he didn't get Mexico to pay for it. Not the whole thing. There was no mechanism. So what I did do is I got 28,000 soldiers from Mexico. And that's much more expensive than having them pay for a piece of the wall. And it was very interesting because they said, we will not pay for that. Are you, how could you ask us for a thing like that? I said, no, you're going to pay for it. You have to pay for it. No, no, we're not going to do it. The president, who I have a lot of respect for, I really like him, even though he's a socialist, that's okay. Can't have everything, as I say. Can't have everything. But he was, he's a great guy, the president of Mexico. And I said, no, you got to pay for it. So they sent their top negotiator to see me in Washington. And I had the people from the State Department, a woman from the State Department who only handles Mexico said, sir, they're not going to pay for this. And they're not going to pay for a thing called remain in Mexico. That was me. You know, remain in Mexico was a Trump deal. They were all Trump deals, everything. We had 10 things. I said to Border Patrol, these people are incredible people, by the way, ICE and Border Patrol. I said, give me the 10 most important thing that you need from Mexico and from the other South American countries. They gave me 10 things, all of which were impossible. Catch and release in Mexico. 
as opposed to, you know, catch and releases, we catch them, release them into the United States. I said, no, we catch them and release them into Mexico. I got everything. But I said to them, I said, you have to, you have to give us 28,000 soldiers free of charge. And he laughed at me like I was like a fool. We don't like being called a fool. He laughed at me. I said, you can't laugh at me. Why are you laughing at me? You know you're going to pay it, don't you? No, we're not going to pay it. Why would we pay for a thing like that? I said, you're going to pay it 100%. Look at me in the eye. I told him, look at me in the eye. You're going to pay it. No, we're not. I said, yes, you are. Here's what we're going to do. It's Friday now. On Monday morning at 7 o'clock in the morning, every car and every product that Mexico makes coming into the United States will have a 25% tariff on it which is far more money than you're talking about for the soldiers who you're paying anyway. So you're going to either do it or that. Uh, sir, I'd like to uh, make a phone call. Please come back quickly. He came back within five minutes. Sure, it would be our great honor to give you 28,000 soldiers, to have a policy of remain in Mexico, to have catch and release in Mexico. And seven other things that were, frankly, in many cases, worse. And we had the safest border in our history, and it wasn't really that tough. I appointed nearly 300 federal judges and three great Supreme Court justices. That was a big deal. I kept my promise, recognized Israel's eternal capital, and opened the American embassy in Jerusalem. Nobody thought that was possible, right? I also recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. So horrible what's happening in the last six weeks. Think of it. You go back three months, four months, but go back three years. This is an impossible. This would have never happened. What happened, the attack on Israel would have never happened. Uh, Iran was broke under the Trump administration. They were broke because I wouldn't allow any country to buy oil. China, I wouldn't allow him. I said to President Xi, if you buy oil, you're not going to do business in the United States, and I'm going to tariff you at 100%. He said, like you said, we're not doing any business with Iran. Same thing with, same thing with uh, many countries, France, every country. I said, any country, any country, India was a big one. They were a big buyer. Any country that does business with Iran is not going to do any business with the United States. And any goods that you do send in, uh, we're going to tariff you at 100 percent. So they did virtually no sales of oil and they were broke. They were broke and they had no money from for Hamas and they had no money for Hezbollah. They had no money for any of these many terrorist organizations. Now they're very rich because Biden lifted all of that stuff off. We would have had a deal. If the election weren't rigged, we would have had a deal with Iran within the first week I was back in office. They were ready to make a deal. They were broke. And a Democrat politician last week said on, I think, Deface the Nation, a show called Deface. Ladies and gentlemen, Donald Trump on Deface the Nation. Now, it's sometimes referred to as Face the Nation. I like Deface the Nation better. But it was on that. Another one was on uh, Meet the Press. Meet, I call that one Meet the Fake Press. But, but they said, well, I will admit one thing. Under President Trump, Iran was broke because Iran is the problem because they have all the money. So not only did we give them $6 billion for five people, hostages or whatever you want to call them, that shouldn't have been there, by the way, they shouldn't have been there. But we gave them 
we gave them six billion. Think of that. And then we gave them ten billion dollars for electricity going to Iraq. I don't know if you know about that, but they sell the electricity to Iraq and we gave them ten. So we gave them sixteen. And everyone says, Oh, that's so much. Oh, that's peanuts. We gave them two hundred and fifty billion dollars in the selling of oil. They're selling millions and millions of barrels of oil to China, to India, to all these countries that weren't buying under the Trump administration, took off all of the sanctions and all of the verbal, the verbal thrashings that I'd give these people. I said, if you want to do that, you're not going to do any more business in the United States where they make a lot of money. So we had it done. It was a done deal. And then we had the bad results with the election. Horrible, horrible results. What a different country when you think about it. I'm just saying up here, talking to you, just like I've got three people in the room. You know, what a terrible thing has happened to our country over an election, over an election. Think of our country would have been, we would have had no inflation. We wouldn't have had the surrender in Afghanistan, which was probably the worst and most embarrassing day in the history of this country that the fake news doesn't talk about. They never talk about it anymore because they're really bad. They're fake. It's not what they say, it's what they don't say, because what they don't tell you is far worse than what they tell you. But we would have had a much different country. We would have had continued to have the greatest economy ever, but we're going to bring it back. I withdrew from the disastrous Iran nuclear deal. That was one of the biggest things I did for Israel, but no, nothing happened with it because they didn't when they withdrew. You're supposed to make a deal. They were broke. They withdrew. You were supposed to make a deal. And with the historic Abraham Accords, I even made peace in the Middle East. We're going to have peace in the Middle East. So for four straight years, I kept America safe. I kept Israel safe. I kept Ukraine safe. None of this stuff would have happened. And I kept the entire world safe. And we will again as the 47th president of the United States. We'll do it again. Thank you. I'm the only candidate who can make this promise. And this is one of the biggest promises because our country's never been in a situation like this. We have a man that has no clue negotiating with nuclear weapons. I will prevent World War III. I will prevent it. On my first day back in the White House, I will terminate every open borders policy of the Biden administration, stop the invasion on our southern border, and begin the largest domestic deportation operation in American history. Does anybody want to hear the snake? Do you know what the snake is? Do you want it? Does anybody know what the snake is? It's something, it was a song written many years ago and changed it around a little bit. Should I say it or not? I don't know. Madam Attorney General, should I do the snake? Okay, if the Attorney General wants it, I'm doing it. She's great. So this is really a metaphor. This is a situation that's happening on our border and elsewhere, where we're allowing people to come into our country that are very dangerous. And it's really, I think, perfect. And unfortunately, it's true, because we're waiting for disasters, the likes of which we probably have never seen before. China, just recently, we found out 27,000 people come in, all young men, no wives, family, and children, all young men. What are they, building an army in our country? Other countries from 
other countries from South America, but countries from all over the Middle East are pouring into our country. A lot of bad things are going to happen. A lot of bad things. This is not, this is not good stuff. It's, uh, it's a disaster waiting to happen. So remember that when you're hearing these words. On her way to work one morning, down the path along the lake, a tender-hearted woman saw a poor, half-frozen snake. His pretty colored skin had been all frosted with the dew. Poor thing, poor thing, poor thing, she cried. I'll take you in and I'll take care of you. Take me in, O oh tender woman. Take me in for heaven's sake. Take me in, O oh tender woman, cried the vicious snake. She wrapped him up all cozy in a comforter of silk and laid him by her fireside with some honey and some milk. She hurried home from work that night, and soon as she arrived, she found the pretty snake she'd taken in had been revived. Take me in, O oh tender woman, take me in for heaven's sake. Take me in, O oh tender woman, cried the vicious snake. She clutched him to her bosom. You're so beautiful, she cried. But if I hadn't brought you in by now, you truly would have died. She stroked his pretty skin again and kissed and held him tight. But instead of saying, thank you, ma'am, the snake gave her a vicious bite. Take me in, O oh tender woman. Take me in, for heaven's sake. Take me in, O oh tender woman, sighed the vicious snake. I saved you, cried the woman, and you've bitten me, but why? You know your bite is poisonous, and now I'm going to die. Shut up, silly woman, said the reptile with a grin. You knew damn well I was a snake before you took me in. Now that is exactly what's happening to our country. Okay, exactly. Right? Exactly. Right? Gonna be bad. Gonna be bad. We're gonna do a big deportation. We're gonna get those bad ones out. Remember, mental institutions, prisons, and terrorists are pouring into our country. We're right now the largest caravan. That was my term, I think. I have a lot of terms, a lot of good terms. But caravan was uh, my term. The largest caravan anyone's ever seen is right now coming up through Mexico. Thousands and thousands of people are going to pour right into a country. We have no idea who they are. Bad things are going to happen. Very bad. I will immediately restore and expand the Trump travel ban on entry from terror play countries, and I will implement strong ideological screening on all immigrants. That's we have no choice. If you hate America, if you want to abolish Israel, if you sympathize with jihadists, then we don't want you in our country and you're not going to come into our country. We will restore law and order to our communities and we will respect our police again. And I will direct a completely overhaul DOJ to investigate every Marxist prosecutor in America for their illegal racist in reverse enforcement of the law. We will take over our horribly run Washington, D.C. 
It is horribly run. Have you seen it? It's filthy, dirty, with graffiti all over the most beautiful marble columns, magnificent columns built 200 years ago, 100 years ago. It's, they're loaded with graffiti at levels you've never seen. The roads are disgusting. They're like driving over garbage. And we're going to clean it up, renovate it, and rebuild our capital so that it's no longer a nightmare of murder and crime. Last week, three people were killed. Every week, people are killed. Every night, people are hurt badly. They go to Washington. They're proud of their country. They come out, they're frightened, they go outside. They can't go outside, you can't. If you go outside, you're making a big mistake. This is our capital, it's never been like that. You know, when I left, it was uh, different. It was much different. But years ago, it was really amazing. Now what they're doing, you know, I, I wouldn't allow anybody to park on our, put their tent up on our lawns, our beautiful parks. Now the parks are loaded up with tents and they're loaded up with homeless. We have to help the homeless, but we can't destroy our capital. We're going to rebuild our capital. We're going to make it so beautiful. It's going to be the most beautiful capital in the world. And unlike Ron DeSanctis, I will protect Social Security and Medicare for our great seniors. They deserve it. Why are we doing this? There's so many ways we can make money. A drill, a drill, drill, drill. Much more money than we're talking about. We drill got more, more liquid gold than anybody in the world. We're also going to fight to give much better health care than what you have right now. This is a newer subject, but Obamacare is a disaster. And I said, we're going we're gonna to do something about it. I saved Obamacare when we got John McCain's negative vote. You know, he voted against it after campaigning for many, many years. He said, uh, thumbs down. That was an amazing night. But we're going to fix it because uh, it's a catastrophe for family budgets. Even Elizabeth Pocahontas Warren, have you ever heard of her? Now she's uh, Pocahontas because of her great Indian heritage. She even said that it needs to be fixed. Pocahontas said it has to be fixed, so we're going to fix it. We're in open enrollment. You know, we have an open enrollment season right now on Obamacare. And everybody's seeing how staggeringly and brutally expensive their plans have become, right? They're like crazy what's going on with the plans, the way they're up. They're not, they're not affordable. Under this complete and total Democrat-created disaster, a family of four is paying over $1,500 a month for health care plans with a $10,000 deductible. You know, you're going to be hit by a truck. That's a big deal. $10,000 deductible. So you get nothing, basically. You're paying into something, you get nothing. A 60-year-old couple is paying $2,000 a month with that big deductible. We're going to make it much less expensive for people. We're going to make it much better care. And we're going to give far more options to American patients. And we're not looking to save. We're looking to help people. You know, they said, oh, I'm going to attack Obamacare. I'm not attacking it. When we had Obamacare, I fixed it and made it work. But I also made the statement, it will never be any good. It will never be any good. And it is no good. We're going to give you great health care. That's what we're going to give you. On day one, I will sign a new executive order to cut federal funding for any school pushing critical race theory, transgender insanity, and other inappropriate racial, sexual, or political content 
on our children. And I will not give one penny to any school that has a vaccine mandate or a max a mask mandate. And this is one I can't even believe I have to say. I will keep men out of women's sports. Do you believe it? Yeah. I will fully uphold the Second Amendment that I have done that. I will protect innocent life. We will restore free speech. We do not have free speech. And I will secure our elections. Our goal will be, as I said before, one day voting with paper ballots and voter ID. It's very simple. And by the way, do you know how much money you save on the machines? You'll be spending one-tenth or less to get better elections, safer elections. But until then, Republicans must win so I can get that job done. If you want to save America from crooked Joe Biden, then get every patriot you know, make sure they're registered Republicans and get them out to vote. Their local precinct caucus at 7 p.m. So it's 7 p.m. on Monday, January 15th, Martin Luther King Day, and get out there and do a job, do a job. You know, if we can get the big numbers, there's nothing they can do. They cheat, and they're always going to cheat. We're going to try and keep it down to a minimum. They cheat like hell. That's all they know how to do. That's the only thing they do well. Their policies are, who the hell wants open borders, high taxes, high interest rates, can't buy a home, bad education. There's not a thing they do that's, how could you win elections like that? You know how? By cheating. That's what they have to do. And they cheat and they don't care. And they don't care how many times you vote. Vote as many times as you can. Where Republicans say, sir, I'm an American citizen. I can only vote once. You know, that's the way it is. And there's something nice about that. But what they do in elections should, should never, ever have happened. We are asking you to commit to caucus for us and bring as many people as you can to caucus for the campaign. Sign up at ia.donaldjtrump.com. So in conclusion, together we're taking on some of the most menacing forces and vicious opponents our people have ever seen. No matter how hateful and corrupt the communists and criminals we're fighting against may be, you must never forget that our nation does not belong to them. This nation belongs to you, Front Row Joes. This is your home. This is your heritage. And our American liberty is your God-given right. And we love that you're here. You know, we're going to go out after this is over. You have plenty of time, and we're going to see a, a game against a place called Michigan. You're going to be watching that? So good luck. That'll be good. But in the meantime, as important as that is, this is more important because we're going to save our country. We're going to save our country. This is, this is our last chance. We stand on the shoulders of American heroes who cross the oceans and blaze the trails, settled the continent, tamed the wilderness, laid down the railroads, dug out the great Panama Canal, raised up the skyscrapers, 
won two world wars, defeated fascism and communism, and launched our brave American astronauts to plant the stars and stripes on the face of the moon. What we've done is so incredible. And now we have a horrible situation going on, an embarrassment. Our country's become an embarrassment. Together, they made America into the single greatest nation in the history of the world. History of the world. Think of that. Think of that. But now, we are a nation in decline. We are a failing nation. We are a nation that has the highest inflation in 50 years, where banks are collapsing and interest rates are skyrocketing. Likewise, we are a nation where energy costs have reached the highest in history. We are no longer energy independent or energy dominant as we were just three short years ago. We are a nation that is begging Venezuela and many others for oil. Please, 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 Joe Biden says, please help us, please, please. And yet we have more liquid gold under our feet than any other country anywhere in the world. We are a nation that just recently heard that Saudi Arabia and Russia will be reducing their output of oil and substantially increasing the price. And met that threat by announcing that we will no longer be drilling for oil in large areas of Alaska and other parts of our country. We are a nation that is consumed by the radical left's Green New Deal, yet everyone knows that the Green New Deal is fake and will lead to our destruction. We are a nation whose leaders are demanding all electric cars, despite the fact that they can't go far, cost too much, and whose batteries are produced in China with materials only available in China, when an unlimited amount of gasoline is available inexpensively in the United States, but it is not available in China. And now we are a nation that wants to make our revered army tanks. They are revered. They're the best in the world. They want to make them all electric so that despite the fact that they are also not able to go far, fewer pollutants will be released into the air as we blast our way through the enemy territory. And they also want to make our jet fighters with a green energy stamp, losing 15% efficiency but allowing us to keep our enemy's atmosphere clean of pollutants while we viciously and unceremoniously attack them at levels no one's ever seen before. We are a nation that ended oil exploration and production in the United States. Just as the price of oil reached an all-time high, what other country would do such a foolish and self-destructive thing? We are a nation that surrendered in Afghanistan, leaving behind dead soldiers 
American citizens and $85 billion worth of the finest military equipment in the world, and also leaving behind Bagram, one of the biggest military bases in the world, and only one hour away from where China makes its nuclear weapons. Why, oh why, oh why? And we are a nation that allowed Russia to devastate Ukraine, killing hundreds of thousands of people, and it will only get worse. It would never have happened with me as your president, and for four straight years, it didn't happen. Likewise, the recent attack on Israel would never have happened. They wouldn't even have thought of doing what they did. Iran was broke under the Trump administration. They didn't have the money to fund Hamas and Hezbollah. They didn't have the money to fund themselves. They were going to make a deal, and it was going to be a great deal for us. And it was going to keep the world safe. But those sanctions were lifted, and now Iran is a rich country with $200 billion and another $6 billion for hostages and $10 billion for electricity from Iraq. All compliments of the Biden administration. And China, with Taiwan, is next. We are a nation that allows the radical left to violently attack our cities, leaving behind massive destruction and death, and nothing happens to them. There is no punishment. But when people who love our country protest in Washington, they become hostages unfairly imprisoned for long portions of their life. We are a nation that has weaponized its law enforcement against the opposing political party like never before seen. We've got a federal bureau of investigation that won't allow bad election changing facts to be presented to the public and which offers $1 million to a writer of fiction about Donald Trump to lie and say it was fact, where Hunter Biden's laptop from hell was Russian disinformation, and the FBI knew it wasn't, but 51 intelligence agents said it was, and a Department of Justice that refuses to investigate egregious acts of voting irregularities and fraud. And we have a man who is totally corrupt and the worst president in the history of our country who is cognitively impaired and in no condition to lead and is now in charge of dealing with Russia and possible nuclear war, which would be World War III and far more devastating than any of the previous wars because of the weaponry that no one even wants to think or talk about. We are a nation that no longer has a free and fair press. Fake news is all you get. And they are indeed the enemy of the people. They refuse to discuss the Biden crime family, but enjoy covering false indictments of Donald Trump, who has done nothing wrong. We are a nation where free speech is no longer allowed and where crime is rampant and out of control like never before. We are a nation that is allowing Iran to build a massive nuclear weapon and China to use the trillions of dollars it has taken from us to build a military to rival its own. What a sad state of affairs. And less than three years ago, just think of it, we had Iran 
China, Russia, and North Korea in check. They weren't going to do a thing against us, and everyone knows it. They respected us like they never respected anybody before. Now Russia and China are holding summits to carve up the world. And perhaps most importantly, we are a nation that is no longer respected or listened to on the world stage. We are a nation that in many ways has become a complete and total joke. And we are a nation that is hostile to liberty, freedom, and faith. We are a nation whose economy is collapsing into a cesspool of ruin, whose supply chain is broken, whose stores are not stocked, whose deliveries are not coming, and whose educational system is ranked at the bottom of every single list. We are a nation where large packs of sadistic criminals and thieves are allowed to go into stores that openly rob them, beat up and kill their workers and customers, and leave with armloads of goods, but no retribution where the authority of our great police has been taken from us, taken from our country, where their families and pensions have been threatened and their lives would be destroyed for the mere mention of the words law enforcement. We are a nation where fentanyl and all other forms of illegal drugs are easier to get than formula for our beautiful little babies and a nation whose once revered airports are dirty, crowded mess. Yet you sit and wait for hours and then are notified that the planes won't leave. They just won't leave. And they have no idea when they will. They have no idea. Where ticket prices have tripled, they don't have the pilots to fly the planes. They don't have qualified air traffic controllers. And they just don't know what they're doing. We are a nation that has lost its confidence, willpower, and strength. We are a nation that has lost its way, but we are not going to allow this horror to continue. Three years ago, we were a great nation, and we will soon be a great nation again. It was hardworking patriots like you who built this country, and it is hardworking patriots like you who are going to save our country. We will fight for America like no one has ever fought before. With you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. We will drive out the globalists. We will cast out the communists. We will throw off the sick political caste. And we will rout the fake news media. We will drain the swamp. And we will liberate our country from these tyrants and villains once and for all and like never before. Like those patriots before us, we will not bend, we will not break. We will not yield. We will never give in. We will never give up. And we will never, ever back down. With your support, we will go on to victory, the likes of which no one has ever seen before. We will evict 
crooked Joe Biden from the White House, and we will take back our country on Election Day 2024. The great silent majority is rising like never before, and under our leadership, the forgotten men and women will be forgotten no longer. We are one movement, one people, one family, and one glorious nation under God. And together we will make America powerful again. We will make America wealthy again. We will make America strong again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And we will make America great again. Thank you very much, Iowa. God bless you. God bless you, Iowa. Thank you. And there he is, Donald Trump in Iowa, wrapping up tonight's speech. And we still have more ahead. So don't go away. I've got uh, a little bit more for you tonight before we sign off. So stick with me. I will be right back after this. The New World Order. Government Overreach. The Great Reset. Mainstream media lies. Now more than ever, independent voices are needed. Donate now at freedomreporters.com. That's freedomreporters.com. Maverick News. The antivirus program for your mind. And we have been talking a lot about the economy, China, interest rates, money printing, cryptocurrency, the state of the economy, the ability to buy a home, immigration. That forms the central focus of this new video tonight from the leader of Canada's Conservative Party, Pierre Polyev. Let me bring this up and let's take a look at this together. I have not actually watched this yet, so it's as fresh to me as it is to you. Here we go. Something new and strange has happened in Canada. Canada is sitting on probably one of the largest housing bubbles of all times. Something we haven't seen before. An entire generation of youth now say they will never be able to afford a home. This is not normal for Canada. We've got students who are living in their vehicles because they couldn't find a place to live. Tens of thousands of Canadians could default, Moshe, on their mortgages. And are, are we looking at that kind of nightmare scenario? After generations of affordable and stable Canadian home prices, it now takes 66% of the average monthly income to make payments on the average single detached Canadian house. Given that most of the remaining 34% of the family paycheck is taken up by taxes, there's literally nothing left for food and recreation. And that all assumes that you have enough for a down payment to get the mortgage in the first place. Saving up for that down payment in Toronto now takes an average of 25 years. Not long ago, you paid off a mortgage in that time. 
so young people must rent, but rent has doubled in the last eight years. Newlyweds now pay $1,000 per month to rent a single room in a townhouse that they share with two other couples. 35-year-olds live in their parents' basements. Rents are so high in Toronto that students live in homeless shelters. Others sleep in their cars or even under bridges just to afford to go to university. One grandmother posted signs on hydro poles trying to find a place to live. Middle-class people, like nurses and carpenters, now live in their vehicles. Tent cities are popping up in almost every major city and many small towns in Canada, mostly in places that never had them before. And because homeless shelters are overflowing with people, new refugees are now told to live on the streets and under bridges. Like all countries, we've always had problems. Throughout Canada's past, though, almost anyone who got a job could save up and buy a home by their mid-20s. When did all that change? Canada's About Prime eight years ago. It's crazy to think, but in a little under a decade, Canada's housing costs have basically doubled. The rent has doubled. Mortgage payments doubled. The needed down payment on an average home doubled. Double trouble. Think about that. Housing costs have gone up more since 2015 than they had in all the years before that combined. Eight years ago, the average one-bedroom rent was about 970 bucks. The average today, $1,871. The average needed down payment, about $23,000. Today, 51 grand. Eight years ago, the average mortgage payment was about $1,400. Now, it's over $3,500. Eight years ago, payments on an average single detached home cost roughly 40% of median family income. Now that number is 66%, meaning that paychecks have not caught up with the cost of housing. And we can't blame the rest of the world. Canada's housing costs have risen faster and higher than almost any other country on earth. Depending on how and when you measure it, Canada's housing costs are on average 45 to 75% higher than in the United States. In border towns, it's even more. Homes on the Canadian side are often 100% more expensive than their American counterparts. Look at this home in Niagara, Canada versus this home in Niagara, New York. Only about a half an hour apart from one another. Vancouver is now the third and Toronto the 10th most unaffordable city on earth. Worse than New York, London, England, and even Singapore. A wealthy island with 2,000 times more people per square kilometer than Canada. All these places have more money and people and less land, yet they are more affordable. UBS, a major global bank, now lists Toronto as having the riskiest housing bubble in the world, with Vancouver sixth. According to UBS, home prices in Toronto and Vancouver have gone from fair-valued to overvalued to bubble risk, all in only 10 years. This two-bedroom property in Toronto's Kensington neighborhood costs the same as a 20-bedroom castle situated on five acres of land in Scotland. This shouldn't be a problem in Canada based on our supply-demand dynamics. Think about it. With our massive geography, meaning lots of supply, and our small population, meaning limited demand, housing should be cheap here in Canada. We have the most land per person of any G7 country. That includes much land close to big cities where people need to live to work. 
So why is it so expensive? Well, let's break it down. A mortgage payment has two parts, interest and principal. Interest rates are set by the Bank of Canada, but heavily influenced by the federal government. You'll forgive me if I don't think about monetary policy. Uh... When the government borrows and spends, it bids up the goods we buy and the interest we pay. The Trudeau government has doubled Canada's debt, adding more debt than all prime ministers combined. Our finance minister has conceded that this deficit spending pours fuel on the inflationary fire. And I'm going to start with what we shouldn't do. I think that it is very important not to make the problem worse. I am very mindful of the importance of not pouring fiscal fuel on the flames of inflation. And then a few weeks later, she poured $69 billion of new fuel on that fire. For governments to run huge deficits or borrow money, they sell bonds to investors. In recent years, the Trudeau government's spending has exploded and they've been borrowing more than lenders will lend. So the Bank of Canada has started creating the cash. The money supply has therefore grown eight times faster than the economy over the last three years. More money bidding on fewer goods including fewer houses, equals higher prices. But the central bank doesn't just send a Brinks truck to the prime minister's office. Rather, they use a complicated set of transactions that they call quantitative easing. Always be suspicious when you hear a complicated word that makes no sense to anyone except those benefiting from it. Here's how it goes. First, the government sells bonds to financial institutions. Then, the Bank of Canada buys those bonds right back at higher prices. Financial corporations love it because they're guaranteed a big profit. But the consequence is not only that the government gets more easy money to spend, but the financial system overflows with cash, which often is lent out at ultra low rates in super large mortgages, particularly for wealthy investors whose banking connections get them to the front of the line. So as you can see in this chart from the Bank of Canada itself, investors doubled the number of home purchases they made in just over a year. The black line, well, it shows when the quantitative easing began. Cause, money printing. Effect, housing inflation. So the government deficits forced the Bank of Canada to boost interest rates to push inflation back down. Former Liberal Finance Minister John Manley put it this way. It appears that uh, fiscal monetary policy are not aligned. And the importance of that alignment is, is key. We're still running very large fiscal deficits. Um, the government still talks about how much they're, gonna, they're going to continue to spend. And uh, this is a bit like driving your car with one foot on the gas and the other on the brake. Common sense solution, stop the inflationary deficits so the bank doesn't have to raise the rates. That means cutting government waste and capping government spending with a dollar-for-dollar dollar law that forces politicians to find a dollar of savings for each new dollar of spending. By getting back towards a balanced budget, we'll bring down inflation and interest rates on your mortgage payment. So that helps address the interest cost of the mortgage payment. What about the principal, which is determined by the home price? Canadian prices, which are so much higher than in other countries, are determined by supply and demand. We have the fewest houses per capita in the G7, even though we have the most land to build on. We have fewer houses per capita today 
than we did eight years ago as population has outgrown home building. Canada built fewer homes last year than it built in 1972, 50 years ago. Consider this. In 1972, Canada's population was 22 million and we built about 230,000 homes. In 2022, Canada's population was 39 million and we built about 220,000 homes. In other words, far more people, far less home building. And the shortfall is only growing. Canada's housing agency, the CMHC, predicts a 32% drop in home building this year as higher interest rates and red tape are blocking construction. The agency projects that we will be 3.5 million homes short by the year 2030 based on our current estimates of building and population growth. Where will those 3.5 million families live? More importantly, why can't we build homes to house them? What do you think is the most expensive thing that goes into a new house in, say, Vancouver? Is it labor? Lumber? Land? Nope. Government. A CD House study added up all the costs of labor materials, land, and profit needed to build a home and compared it to the final sale price. In Vancouver, the gap was nearly $1.3 million. That gap, or as I call it, the gatekeeper gap, is the cost of government permit delays, changing rules, pricey consultants, lawyers' fees, charges, taxes, etc. Another study showed Montreal city government blocked 24,000 homes. The city of Winnipeg, meanwhile, just lost a lawsuit because it tried to block the construction of nearly 2,000 homes right next to a newly built transit system. As an example of the mindless red tape costs, the Ontario Housing Affordability Task Force report stated that, quote, minimum parking requirements add as much as $165,000 to the cost of a new home, even as demand for parking spaces is falling. And that one of the strongest signs that our approval process is not working, of 35 OECD countries, only the Slovak Republic takes longer than Canada to approve a building project. The UK and the US approve projects three times faster without sacrificing quality or safety. Government development charges in Ontario can be as much as $135,000 per home, and some have increased as much as 900% in less than 20 years. And those charges don't include governmental costs like taxes, delays, and uncertainty. Worst of all, the Trudeau government has encouraged this gatekeeping with billions of dollars in new grants to the same city governments that block home building. He is literally funding the hiring of more gatekeepers to stand in the way of building homes. So you lose two ways. You pay more in taxes so that you can pay more for a home. So what if we incentivized good behavior rather than reinforcing the bad? Here's how we can. The federal government spends about $4.5 billion on direct and continuous municipal infrastructure transfers. Big city politicians care about getting that money more than anything else. They'll only permit more home building faster if their federal money depends on it. My common sense plan? One, require big cities to complete 15% more home building per year as a condition of getting federal infrastructure money. Two, give building bonuses to cities that exceed the 15% target. Dollars should be based on housing completions, not promises. Three, 
require federally funded transit stations be permitted for high-density apartments all around it and withhold federal transit grants until the apartments are built and occupied. Four, sell off 15% of federal buildings and thousands of acres of surplus federal land suitable for housing. Instead of funding promises, the federal government should fund results. It should link the number of federal dollars big city governments get for infrastructure to the number of new homes completed. Money should flow after the keys are indoors. Pay for promises, get more promises. Pay for results, get results. The good news is we have examples of success. Look at the Squamish Nation and their development in Vancouver. They've approved and begun building on 6,000 apartments and condos on just 10.4 acres of land. That's nearly 600 homes per acre. Now they could do this because being a reserve, they did not need to follow Vancouver City Hall rules. That means 6,000 hardworking local residents will get a place to live because there were no city gatekeepers standing in the way. But let's bring this back. This isn't just about the price of a home. It is not just about numbers. This is people's lives. If we don't fix this, we could have hundreds of thousands of middle-class people living on the street in Canada. A home is your financial future. A home is the place you're secure. A home is where you raise a family. A home is at the center of everything you do in your life. If the government stands in the way of you getting a home, it stands in the way of your entire life going forward. The good news is housing costs were not like this before Justin Trudeau, and they won't be like this after he's gone. We can borrow less and build more. We have all the natural advantages, abundant land, labor, and lumber, the best carpenters, plumbers, framers, and electricians and home builders. We just need to get the gatekeepers out of their way and yours so that we can bring it home. Okay, one more thing. After this, don't go away. Last night we spoke about Henry Kissinger, statesman, passed away, 100 years old. Seen by some as a war criminal for his part in the execution and planning of American wars, the bombing of places like Cambodia during the Vietnam War. Others saw him as an architect of peace. In fact, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. 
It was Henry Kissinger who helped find a path to peace at the end of Vietnam. It was Henry Kissinger who helped to draft, come up with everything that led to the SALT treaties, one and two, the START treaty that came after. Um, some believe that if it wasn't for Henry Kissinger, we very likely would have ended up in some sort of a nuclear war with Russia. So on one hand, he's seen as a man of war, a war criminal. On the other hand, he's also seen as an architect of peace, a complicated man. And I don't think that I really wrapped things up in a, in a proper manner yesterday with our look back at Henry Kissinger. And I wanted to just do this very short part two, simply by doing this, just giving him the last word tonight. This, uh, you know, I, he had spoken at Harvard about three years ago and was asked at that time if he thought he would have made, or if he would like to do anything over, if he had the chance to do it over again, what would he do different? And he did reflect in his answer on the actions taken during the Vietnam War, which he said that, uh, he said that if the country in the United States, if opinion had not become so polarized, so divided, the outcome of the war in Vietnam likely would have been much different and much more positive for America. But would he have done anything different? He sort of changed the question around to rephrase the question that was asked of him and said, would I make a better Secretary of State? Or would I do a better job today after having all this additional time, all this additional experience, all this extra time now to 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 thought things through more knowing now what i wish i'd known then and he said that when you're in the position that he was in making decisions about wars who lives who dies you're under a lot of pressure and you have to act decisively and the answer he came up with was, unfortunately, a simple, I don't know. Because you're always dealing with unknowns, because you are always under pressure, and you have to make decisions in the moment with the best information you have and trying to figure out what's going on around the world geopolitically with your adversaries. But that being said, three weeks ago, he gave one of his last public addresses and uh, 
you know, there's a lot of a lot of knowledge. There was a lot of knowledge there. Whether you liked Henry Kissinger or you didn't like Henry Kissinger, whatever you thought of the man, undeniably a lot of experience in the international arena as a statesman, as a negotiator, and a lot of skill. So I thought tonight, because we've been speaking so much about China, we've heard so many people from Donald Trump to John Kerry tonight talking about China. Henry Kissinger, who served under Nixon and then advised many presidents afterward through his consultation, his consulting company, right, active right up until the end this week, having an influence around the world. You know, he spent much, so much of his life dealing with China. And uh, so tonight, from one of the very last public appearances that he he made, I thought we would give Henry Kissinger the last word here tonight. It won't, it's not a long clip, short, and I think appropriate, simply because I think we can, whatever you think of the man, learn from his experience and maybe find something useful in this. So here he is. I have to look at the American interests. And I am convinced that Chinese-American relations depend on an understanding that the two countries have a unique ability to bring peace and progress to the world. And they also have a unique ability to destroy the world if they are not together. This is the necessity that I see. And let me put it into four categories. One, the basic relationship between China and the United States. Second, the issue of Taiwan. Third, the war in the Ukraine. And fourth, the advanced, advancing technology, which could by itself drive the nations into conflict. <clears throat> I believe now 
as I believe 50 years ago, that we can find our way through these difficulties. When the two presidents meet in San Francisco, as I hope they will, I hope that they will find words to express the reality that they are devoted to peace with each other and that they will make every effort to avoid it and create institutions which permit us to talk to each other at the highest level easily and continuously. With respect to Taiwan, I was present when the agreement, the Shanghai Agreement, was made. So we in America have to avoid giving the impression that we are walking away from the one China concept to which we committed ourselves. And I was there at the drafting of it. So that was a real commitment. In the Shanghai communique, we expressed the American conviction that this goal should be reached by peaceful means. So both sides have a marker towards which they can move. In the war in Ukraine, China had so far not committed itself, and the United States has not criticized China for its conduct. And finally, <clears throat> I want to say a word about technology. The danger lies not in what the two statesmen do right away, but in technology itself. And 
in the danger that we decouple ourselves totally from China in this enterprise. The reason this concerns me is because in nuclear weapons, they can be counted and their aspects may be known. But artificial intelligence is in the minds of people. And so certain restraints should now be agreed to in the near future before we are driven by our technology into a conflict that we should not want. But all of this amounts to my conviction that a peaceful relationship, a cooperative relationship between China and the United States is essential for peace and progress in the world. And I've given you these examples not as a policy statement because that would require a much longer discussion, but as an expression of what this committee has stood for in all its existence. And we have contributed to this evolution. And I'm confident that all of you here will agree that peace and progress between China and the United States is in the self-interest of each country and in the interest of the world. Thank you for asking me to come here and make a few remarks. All the best in this effort that this committee has made and that all of you I hope are devoted to. Thank you for inviting me. I will be back tomorrow night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time.
Love you guys. This has been a Maverick Multimedia Productions.